sitting at lovely 15 Perry Street. It's Robert Gowan. You're listening to Mentors for Military, and glad you guys are uh, tuning in. Uh, be sure to follow us on all those social media with Mentors, the number four MIL, as well as check out our Patreon site if you want to help support the podcast. I'm sitting here with a guest that I've looked so forward to actually having on the show. Um, I read the book, and I'm going to talk a lot about it. And um, Well, first off, my guest is Larry Freeland, the author of Chariots in the Sky, and so glad to have you here. Thank you, Robert. I appreciate you giving me the opportunity. look forward to chatting. Uh, I, I mean, I didn't even know that you were in my backyard until we actually started talking. It was a weird type of situation of how we connected because you actually had uh, a company that was trying to assist you in the production of the book and everything, get the information out there. And they had written to me, and I had written back, and then there was a disconnect, and thank goodness you reached back out again, because I thought that, you know, we're, we're not going to get a chance to get together. Turns out uh, we got on the phone, and there was just a disconnect there. There was. I had a marketing firm that worked with me for about 90 days called PR by the Book, and they reached out to a lot of different podcasts and, and uh, different entities. and. Uh, at the end of the 90 days, they kind of just went away, and they, they hadn't followed up with some of them, so I followed up by myself. And Of course, we've connected, and here we are, and I'm glad we did. <laughs> yeah, and, and to be in Atlanta um, is just awesome because then it made it easier. I mean, when we have guests that fly from all over the country and everything, that's tremendous and stuff, but when you're right here in our backyard, there may be more than one visit that you get a chance to come in here because uh, I could imagine this is not going to be enough time for us to cover everything. We're going to do our best. Okay. <laughs> I'll give it my best shot. So I want to first start off because, as I understand it, um, we were talking a little bit offline that you were a military brat. I was as well. So tell me a little bit about that. And, of course, you, you started off and you were born in Canton, Ohio, which, of course, that's a, that's a kind of cool place with yep. it being the, um, you know, the museum and everything that they've got there. So tell me, uh, tell me a little bit about the background here. Well, my uh, parents uh, were both born uh, in, in Canton, Ohio. Okay. And they didn't know each other through high school. And then my dad went to college and uh, he was a senior in Ohio State in aeronautical engineering. Uh, when the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor in December of 41. Oh, my gosh. And uh, then, uh, of course, he was, he was in an aviation program. I forgot the name of it right now, but he wanted to fly. And uh, they accelerated the program after that, and he was made a second lieutenant uh, and then went on to start his military career and ended up in uh, the 8th Air Force in uh, England uh, during the war. Came back, uh, well, midway through that, he came back on a 30-day leave. I think it was in 43 or 44. And he loved to dance, and he went to a park out there called Myers Lake at the time, and ballroom dancing was really big. And he met her there and uh, fell in love and went back uh, to England and you know, for the rest of the war. And he kept writing her, and he was, I guess, towards the end, uh, he was, his, his tour before the war ended, kept asking her to marry him and marry him. And she was playing coy about it. <laughs> so he comes back, and uh, they end up getting married. He gets out of the service. It was the Army Air Corps back then. And he tried a lot of things for about a year and a half, driving cabs. He was approached by different uh, companies to work with him because by then he was a captain, and he'd gotten out. Um, and other things. I don't remember what he tried. But he said, you know, military is in my blood. I'm going back in. So we volunteered to go back in, and uh, they, they took him back. And, and then he went on to stay in 30 years. So uh, retired as a full colonel. He'd been a full colonel the last several years. 
during that time, we had the Korean War, and he went over to Korea for a while, came back, and then he went to Greenland for about a year and a half uh, up there during this, the early part of the Cold War, and Greenland was really important to the strategy of the Cold War and the SAC Air Base, Strategic Air Command. And he ended up being in SAC the rest of his career, but most of it was as a weatherman, senior weatherman, and he became the top weatherman in, in the service. And I wanted to have three sons. All three of us were born in Canton, Ohio during different deployments for him. He'd go away and come back later, and here'd be another son waiting. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of how it happened back yeah, in those days. That's sure uh, it is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so he, he was in there, uh, 30, and uh, that was a good man, and uh, you know, we were close. Yeah. And um, it's like a lot of fathers and sons like to be, and we certainly were. Uh, then, uh, let's see here. Uh, he, where am I going to go with this? His father, my grandfather, Freeland, was a doughboy in World War I, infantryman. Oh, and, my gosh. And he had served, and I got to know him when Dad was deployed a lot. Uh, we'd, Dad would usually put us in the uh, other side of the house where they lived in Louisville, outside of Canada. They had a huge home, a duplex kind of thing. So I was a younger man. I, I spent a lot of time around my grandfather. And I was uh, just, you know, he and I got real close, too. And he, he never shared any World War I stories but two. And they're really kind of comical. I can go back to those maybe at some point. No, go on. Please tell us now. Okay. This is like perfect lead-in. Well, uh, one was, um, he called it the, and I heard it many times as a young boy and then as a man, because I we were close all through my college and, his, and post-college and in my military career. He uh, would uh, share this one. It's called the uh, best patrol ever. And his platoon was out on patrol one day going across a field somewhere in France and it was supposed to be a, basically a, a non-hostile secure area and it was more of a practice patrol just to get used before they used to patrolling again before they went out on the line and they had you know, maybe 30, 40 guys in the platoon and they were in the standard V-shaped formation, you know, the point guy and they're going across there like that and some, granted it was somewhere way back in the line and the first guy just disappeared, he said, into the ground Another guy runs up to see what happened. He disappeared into the ground. Of course, everybody stops, drop down on the knee, and click their, put, loads up their rifle, and they're looking around. And finally, a guy goes up there and crawls up next to where they fell in and looks down, and they, long story short, they had fallen into a wine cellar, French hidden wine cellar. <laughs> so, uh, and this was sometime during the day, and they formed some kind of a detail went down there and lifted what they wanted and took it back to their camp later that afternoon. Well, you had to inspect it, right? Exactly. And, <laughs> and there was some kind of, you know, requirements. You weren't supposed to do that, but... Uh, oh, yeah. They, can't imagine. Yeah, I can't imagine. Americans will always find a way to make something happen if they wanted to. So they had that wine, and uh, that became known as the best, best uh, patrol ever. Oh, I bet. <laughs> And the only other one he shared was uh, on his way over, uh, he went over in a troop ship, and he was uh, in a Ohio uh, infantry uh, a battalion, I don't remember the name of it. And uh, the other group in the ship that they went over was a Texas rifle, uh, rifle infantry battalion. And of course, it took them weeks to go from New York over to England and then into uh, France. But on the way over, um, he would always say this, this was his second story, saying, you know, yeah, these, got, these Texas guys, they're a rowdy bunch. They like to drink, they like to fight, they cussed, and they love to play cards, poker. So I loved every damn one of them. <laughs> Just his kind of people. Yeah, his kind of people. Uh, granted, was a big man. He was about 6'3", built like a lumberjack. He worked in the steel mill his whole life. And when uh, he came back, Ohio. he went back, you know. 
so uh, anyway, he was, uh, of course, military as a, as a young man for a couple years, got out. And then my father, and then it was you know my turn. I went in, and uh, we'll talk about that a little later. But um, so I, I kind of grew up around that. Yeah. And uh, Dad was stationed at SAC base, the Strategic Air Command. Uh, we were at like places like Homestead Air Base. We were there during the Cuban Missile Crisis from the beginning to the end. And uh, this little story is kind of a you know, eh, funny and maybe not funny, but uh, a, a little in uh, interesting. Uh, the night before uh, the Russians backed down for the Cuban Missile. Yeah. Remember, and they we thought everybody thought you know it was building up to a crescendo and something was going to happen. Yeah. Um, and I was a uh, I was in the tenth grade then, <clears throat> and, and we lived on base at Homestead, and he came home, which we didn't know at the time, but it was the night before the uh, the, the Russians backed off, and uh, he and mom went to the back room, and he told mom I listened through the wall. <laughs> uh, basically, he told mom he said you know in the next twenty four hours we're either going to go to war or they're going to back down. He said, we go to war, you know, Homestead is one of their targets uh, for the nukes. He said, so it's, it's not going to be, uh, it's not going to be a fast war. It's not going to be a long war. It's going to be fast. He said, I just don't know what all is going to happen, but it'll be bad. I just want you to know that. He said, I'll get you and the boys out, but there's no place you can go. So uh, when they settled down, he came back out of the room with mom, and I'd gone into the kitchen, and they come in. Dad's a little teary-eyed, and mom's just, she's a basket case. And he goes back to work because he was doing 24-7 during that thing uh, just to come home, change uniforms, rushing up a little bit, get a bike, and go back to the flight line. And that went on for a couple of weeks. But that night, and then the next day, of course, the, the infamous uh, uh, crew chef backs, backs off and pulls his people out, and it all kind of settles back down. But we were there for that, and then we moved to, uh, he got reassigned to uh, Ramey Air Force Base, another bomber base in Puerto Rico. Uh, and I was transferred, he was transferred down there in my senior year, so I'd been at Homestead many years and had all these friends and through South State High School and a lot of things going on. And in August, we relocate to Puerto Rico, Ramey Air Base. So I'd start all over and make some friends there and uh, graduated from there and came back to States for two years. Uh, between, I'd go home to, to Puerto Rico, but I came back uh, to the States to go to the University of South Florida for four years. And my grandparents, my granddaughter and grandma Freeland, they lived in Arcadia, which is maybe an hour and a half uh, from Tampa, St. Pete area, and it's more central to the state. Mm -hmm. big, big cattle country in there was then Orange Grove Company. I think now it's more cattle. Florida's really taken a hit with their Orange Grove <laughs> trees and stuff. But um, uh, I spent a lot of time there with him, and um, so that's basically my military connection. Uh, yeah, growing up on a base, meeting. Well, I grew up around veterans. Yeah, and active duties, people of third in World War II, Korea. And uh, th these are pretty pretty tough fellows. Yeah, no doubt about and, it. Uh, the stories they would tell, um, usually you could hear that when they'd have their big, uh, at our house, bridge was big. Mom and dad played bridge, and they'd have all these people over all the time, big bridge clubs Yeah. over the years. And, and they some of the guys would go in, in a corner before or after they were done playing, and they'd start talking a little bit. And I'd overhear some of their stories. So, uh, And then, of course, I got to know a lot of them over the years and uh, just kind of were impressive fellows. That's kind of my uh, exposure, if you will, over the growing up through at least 21. When I graduated from college in June of 68, um, <clears throat> it was my turn. I got drafted. <laughs> so that's what I was going to ask you about. As, started, as I started reading the book, 
I was wondering, and this is where you can kind of help me about where the fiction versus the reality is from the book, because you did kind of write it in a, in a fictional way, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. And is a lot of that so that you didn't have to go through some of the hoops in order to... Yes, I uh, <laughs> didn't want to didn't want to do that. Uh, a couple of reasons. I wanted to make it historical fiction, mm-hmm. and I wanted to create a character, which in the book is his name's T.J. Uh, Taylor St. James, Captain, and he's a Huey pilot. And I wanted him to basically epitomize a chopper pilot, a Huey pilot, uh, or just an army pilot, if you will, in Vietnam. So I drew from uh, different people I knew and, and worked with and flew with, and of course some from myself, and created TJ. And I also wanted to put him in every situation imaginable during the book, mm-hmm. uh, and I'll come back to why, but so uh, to get all that in there, uh, everything in there with everything in there basically happened to somebody uh, or I was flying with myself or, or I heard about or I saw. Uh, the 101st is, no, is a real unit. Uh, the, the, the unit in there is fictional called the Eagles, mm. kind of a broader play on the Screaming Eagles. Mm-hmm. Uh, and everybody in, in the, the main characters and all are composites of the people I met uh, and worked with or flew with. <clears throat> So, uh, but all the events are, are basically embedded in historical uh, uh, accuracy, if you will. Now, there's one character, and uh, you'll know who I'm talking about, the second CO in there. Mm. He's a little bit, um, a little bit over the top. I wanted it to be, uh, you know, really. So make, he's, he's true fictional then? He's, he's a composite. Because that's part of the, what I had dog-eared, by the way. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's, he's fictional, but he's got some truth to him. Uh, yeah, he so. does. When I read it, I could see that guy so many times in my career. <laughs> I hear that a lot. Right? I mean. I, I hear that a lot. Uh, so I had fun with that. I, I just, I'll come back, we'll talk about that later maybe, but I've just finished my second uh, book. It's a, it's a first book in a trilogy I'm going to write. And a couple of the reviewers uh, have made the comment to me uh, that you sure know how to write a bad guy. <laughs> they're, they're the most fun. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. Well, and, and if you've served in the military for any period of time, you're automatically going to be able to relate to that person. You yeah, know? I get that a lot. Like I said, you know, yeah, they're, they, they're, they're everywhere. They are. And, uh, you know, the characters you run into in the book, I think everybody can relate to them. Um, Every one of them. It's one of the reasons why I enjoy the book so much. Um, toxic leadership we talk about is something, you know, and that's a, a clear example of this commander and, you know, how badly it can influence um, and, and drive people uh, to to want to leave. Yeah. And, I mean, there's a lot of probably listeners who are on active duty who run into leadership that, quite frankly, they're asking themselves, is this something I want to tolerate for a long period of time? Is this the, the direction I want to go? And I think what, what the book starts uh, describing, um, and that is usually reality, is that they're going to move on. Um, give it time. You know, if you give yourself time, you're going to run into probably a few more of them in life in general. But That was a lesson that I, one of many I learned in my short career, five years and a month in the Army, is that if you didn't like the assignment or the CEO, there's always a new assignment and a new CEO. Mm-hmm. And there's generally a lot of good people out there and a lot of good units. And uh, so you land somewhere and uh, move forward. So there's always that light at the end of the tunnel. Now that stood me well because uh, my career after I got out uh, was 28, almost 29 years in banking, three years as a consultant, seven years as a college instructor. 
I ran into more than my share of people I didn't really enjoy working with, and, <laughs> and uh, so uh, and others I really enjoyed working with. Yeah. So I, I learned a lot from that then five years in the service about you know just keep a happy face and move forward. There's always another opportunity, and it stood me well. I mean, I had a few times there in my uh, civilian career, professional career, you know, I got a little dicey, but I was able to work through that. But these le that lesson learned, along with many others from my service days, paid dividends. Yeah, different face, different name, different situations, you know, but still pretty much the same story. So did you end up going... Is it true that you end up still going into uh, infantry in the very beginning? So was that how did that come about? Was that by choice or part of the draft? Or, so I'm curious about this part. Uh, there's some good stories here. Let's All right. <laughs> <laughs> well, my dad was in the Air Force, and he was a full colonel. He'd been for several years. I thought I wanted to be a pilot. Mm -hmm. um, because he was in the Air Force or just? Well, he was in the Air Force. I met the pilots. I, I hadn't flown until I actually started learning how to fly Hilliers, but... I thought this would just be, be a career that I could, could handle and, uh, and, and look like a fun may be the wrong word, but it looked like it uh, would be a challenge and, and rewarding. So uh, I thought I'd go into the service and, and, and uh, be a pilot, try and go into the, uh, either the Navy or the Air Force. Um, my senior year in college, actually going into my senior year, back then a lot of people can't relate to this, but the draft was uh, public enemy number one with young men. <laughs> Most of us. Well, it, so talk about that maybe a little bit about the lottery and, and all of that, because it wasn't like you're going to win a million dollars like today. It was a little bit different, and they'd, uh, wouldn't they flash it on the TV and kind of tell well, the... They yeah. did later on. Uh, I think that started in 70 or 71, actually. Oh, so not early. No, no. You, your draft board made you 1A and threw your name in the list, and then the government swooped you up. Mm. Uh, and there was multiple classifications back then. In my case, uh, I was uh, college four years, and every we were in a quarter system, then we'd go to a trimester, and then we'd go to a semester and back. But every period of uh, the, the school we would have to resubmit forms to say we're still in school, we're still enrolled, and we're still uh, uh. on the books. And we, kept, we were classified to as student deferment. And so uh, my junior year and starting my senior year, man, they did, I didn't even have to submit it. They came after me. Where's your form? Where's your form? <laughs> and I made the mistake early on, I'm digressing again, of, of uh, signing up at a local draft board in Arcadia where my grandparents were, which is not a big community because dad was still in Puerto Rico and uh, we didn't have a permanent address. So I was registered there in Arcadia, Florida. Um, so did, did that, that did that make a difference? Yeah, it did, it, it did, and they'll get to that. Okay, all right, yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry, you <laughs> no Because uh, I, I didn't understand this part, so this is, yeah, this yeah. is good. Uh, we, uh, let's see, I was a junior, and then going into my senior year, I had to get serious because the war was really heating up, 67, 68 with Tet, Mm -hmm. That was my senior year, and it was in January and February. But in the fall of 67, I thought, well, I'm going to pursue an, uh, the Navy, see if I can get in the Navy aviation program. So I went out and I applied, and I was tested, uh, and I didn't quite score high enough on all their uh, aptitude tests or whatever, whatever they called them. Uh, it's just, well, thanks for your you know, wanting to go, but you're not, you're not qualified go somewhere else so uh, <laughs> I thought well let's try the Air Force and I probably should have done that first but I just thought it'd be cool to fly fighters off of carriers yeah I mean, it looked pretty interesting uh, but uh, so when I didn't, didn't get accepted I applied to the Air Force in December and January I passed all their tests and I was sent out to McDill Air Base which was right near Tampa there 
and I was spent the whole day doing going through all their flight physicals and their flight tests, and they put in these things and spin you around and, and just all kinds of stuff. And when you're done, your eyes you couldn't see for a couple hours, and all the stuff they did with. But it was a whole day, and, and I passed. And uh, a couple weeks after that, I got notified that I've been officially accepted to the uh, Air Force uh, flight training program. And I would need to go to their OCS program to become a second lieutenant and then go on to flight school. And I can't remember exactly, but I think their OCS was eight to 10 weeks, but I'm not sure on that. So, but I had a date. And uh, you got to remember back then, everybody was trying to, most everybody in our age groups that were draft eligible were trying to get the best deal they could, going to the guard, going to the reserves, or volunteer for the military in some job that you know, they didn't necessarily uh, get go see combat. Nothing wrong with that. We all, you know, most everybody tried to do that, myself included. Uh, so, anyway, uh, where was I going with that? <laughs> <laughs> about about the fact of the draft boards and being Arcadia, the the decision to do Arcadia, whether it was good or bad. And I'm waiting to hear, like, oh, yeah. was it a good decision uh, or a bad? <laughs> no, we're going to get there in a minute. Okay, now. So yeah. now you got approved for the Air Force and for flight school. For flight um, school. Yep. And I graduated in uh, June, uh, early June. Uh, first week, I think, and I was in a fraternity, ATO, and a bunch of the brothers and I that graduated, we went uh, to Daytona to celebrate for a week. Spring break. Yeah. <laughs> not really. <laughs> not like they do today. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that ended, and I went home, and laying on my bed was report to your uh, draft board. You were uh, going to do your physical at Mon uh, Birmingham or Montgomery, one of those two places, I can't remember, because by then we were living in Panama City for dad. Yeah, my junior year, Dad got transferred out of Ramey to Tyndall Air Base there in the Panhandle. Probably Montgomery because that's where Gunner Air Force Base is where I went and had my physical when I joined from the Panhandle. I think that's it. Yeah. I think that's it. In Montgomery. I think, is, isn't it called Gunter? Is that right? Uh, that I don't remember. I, it, anyway, there's an Air Force Base in Montgomery. I mean, I think you're right. I think that's where most likely they probably sent you at that same time frame because that was the nearest place where they were doing a lot of that mm -hmm. um, onboarding, if you want to call it, yeah. physicals. And, that's what they did. They um, had that, and I had a date that I had to go. So my dad took me down to the bus station when that day came, uh, rode up there, spent, uh, I guess it was at least one night, maybe two nights. Yeah, it was two nights. First night got there, and they just run you around in this old building, warehouse complex, and it's a big, big uh, uh, room with uh, double bunk beds, and they're just everywhere. Three, 400 guys could be housed in there, which they were at any one, any one time. And I uh, spent the night there, and then the next day you went through the Army draft physical and questions and all that stuff. And that afternoon, they lined us up in groups of 30 and take you into a room to swear you into the Army because you mm -hmm. were being drafted. You didn't have an option. You were 1A. You passed. Uh, and in the group I was in, and this is a true story, and uh, I'm sure a lot of guys out there in my age group that went through it probably had some of the similar stories, they had a Marine come into our room where we were standing at attention in rows of, I think it was four, like six, seven, eight of us in a row, and there was a lot of space between them. And this Marine starts in the front, and he's a mean-looking guy, and he walks down and he looks you over, and he taps so many guys through this line, and he pointed to this door and sent them through that door, and they didn't tap me. I thought this was a movie. I've actually seen this kind of stuff done. You know, it's like one, when every time I say to three, everybody going, one, two, three, one, two, three, you know. This is real? This is real. They drafted them into the Marines. <laughs> this was uh, July, uh, July of 1968. Uh, drafted them into the Marines. That, we didn't know at the time that that was happening at that moment, 
that night we were all laying around because the next morning we were going to be shipped out to wherever they were sending all of us. And there was a lot of crying going on <laughs> in that big room. And we learned that these guys, uh, a lot of guys had been pulled out of the groups. Uh, there are different groups and drafted into the Marines, and they were whisked out of there right away. Wow. Uh, the next morning they were the first guys to go wherever they, wherever they sent them. So that was my first uh, exposure to the Army. But um, I left out a little segment. Uh, because I had been uh, accepted to the Air Force training program. Right. You were trying to volunteer so that you didn't get drafted. Right. Kind of, yeah. And uh, they couldn't get us started, or the OCS, the earliest they could get me started was uh, in October of 68. So I had to wait till October uh, to report to start OCS because uh, they were so backlogged, like back to everybody was trying to get the best opportunities they could, and I thought going to flight school delayed a couple years in the warland and all that, and besides I'd learn how to fly. Uh, but uh, anyway, uh, that didn't happen. <laughs> no, it didn't. <laughs> there wouldn't be a book. Yeah, there wouldn't a be good. a book. <laughs> My draft board says, there's no way, Larry, you're going, and the reason I was going is Arcadia Small, and they had a quota they had to meet, and my name was in the pot, and they weren't going to give me any any uh, consideration. And the military couldn't really do anything about it because they didn't own me yet. They had the orders, but they didn't own me yet. And then on top of that, uh, my father uh, uh, was, like I said, a full colonel in the Air Force. And he was, he was, in his generation, I can't speak for all of them, but a lot of the men I met were really stand-up guys. And they had a code. And they had honor. And uh, he said, Larry, I'm not going to intercede on your behalf. It's just going to happen. You, know, you, you make your own life, you walk your life, and you, and you deal with it. I thought, at that time, I wasn't, I really thought, Dad, just please. <laughs> please, Dad. <laughs> you know, you, know, you got to make tough decisions, and yeah. you just do it. And, he, and, and to his credit, later on in life, I thought, you know, that took a lot of courage on his part. Later in life, I picked that part yeah, up. Yeah, later in life. <laughs> and I learned a lesson from that. And uh, so, uh, anyway, he wouldn't intercede. And then to make that story even more interesting, my dad was a friend of General Curtis LeMay. They had uh, hooked up during the war in England. That's a whole nother story, but uh, they, and he would fly down, LeMay would fly down to Puerto Rico every once on the SAC base, and he would stay at the general quarters, which was right behind Colonel Rowe, where we lived, and he and Dad would hook up occasionally on the top part of the house on the second floor where we had a uh, outdoor patio. LeMay liked to smoke uh, his cigars. I met him twice, and he scared the heck out of me both times. <laughs> but uh, he liked to smoke cigars and, and, and drink. I don't know if it was bourbon or whiskey, but he had some favorite drink. And he and Dad just sit up there for hours and talk. Dad was a huge Russian history buff. And uh, LeMay believed all along, as a lot of other top generals, the Russians were you know, really some pretty bad guys back then, and that was the whole basis for the Cold War. So they would talk Cold War stuff and whatever. But anyway... I, I thought, well, Dad, you could call up LeMay. He's, he's the chief of staff for the United States Air Force, and you make a call, and I'm, I'm good. No, it didn't happen. So uh, anyway, I, I, uh, I, I had to go in. I went to uh, Fort Dix, New Jersey in July. Uh, everybody, well, as a group, and we have basic training you know, in the Army. It's mm -hmm. all the same. And came down at the end of that, and about everybody was going AIT, Advanced Infantry Training. Of course, they weren't going to let me out of that, so I went AIT. While I was in AIT, as a lot of the guys in our comp training company, there was over 200 of us, a lot of them were college grads that had gotten the same as me, gotten, gotten drafted. And they were actively recruiting, um, I can't say all of us, but many of us for volunteering to go to OCS, officer candidate school. They wanted college graduates, they, you know, uh, if they could get them. 
So uh, they kept coming after us early in AIT, and as we got closer to the end, everybody in the classes ahead of us was all going to NOM from Fort Dix. Um, and uh, so <laughs> we thought we'd go to Germany when they sent us to Fort Dix back then. Yeah. Uh, it wouldn't have been bad. Because Polk was the big uh, one back then, wasn't it, to kind of prepare you for Vietnam? Yeah. yeah. My wife's first husband went to Polk. Yeah. Trained as an infantryman. That was the big place. If you went there, you knew where you were going. Yeah. Uh, but in 68, they had so much uh, casualties and everything in Nam. 68 was a bad year, 69. Well, also for officers. Yeah, for everybody. Yeah, <laughs> but officers, yeah, pilots. And uh, so they were sending everybody over. As we got closer to the, uh, the end of that, me and a couple of my buddies, and we're talking about it, saying, you know, if we go to OCS, that's six months of training. I understand if you graduate, it's six months in country before they ship you. That's another year, you know, maybe it'll end. So anyway, a bunch of us volunteered for OCS, and they said we had only three branches open, um, artillery, infantry, and armor. And I felt, I had, a ma- I had a double major of math and finance degree. I wanted to go to work for Big Blue, but when I graduated in 68, they weren't hiring anybody unless you had your military service out of the way. They just wouldn't even talk to you. So anyway... Uh, I thought, well, with my math degree, surely I'll go artillery, planning angles and doing calculations and all these things. And a couple guys were lawyers and uh, so on and so forth. But anyway, we all came down with CS Infantry. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't matter then. Did not matter. <laughs> so, so you we, guys were sitting there dreaming of all these different things you wanted to do, yeah. and once again, Uncle Sam says yeah. no. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, <laughs> you know, a year in the Army, you'd think you'd, well, six months at that point, you'd think you'd learn, but... Yeah. You know, continually surprises you so uh we we got we all went to ocs at fort benning yeah i was there six months graduated and uh was assigned to benning as a uh a heavy weapons instructor at the at the uh infantry school there at fort benning 4.2 deuces and i thought okay i can read about them but i haven't been to nam yet i mean surely an nco that's been there is going to really make the guys that have to do it understand but anyway i sent me and i had to go through a week of training and then started doing that and I thought this is nuts I uh, I need to get if I'm going over as a second lieutenant which after six months all of us were second oh lieutenant, you already years. knew that yeah yeah when you graduate it was uh congratulations you're going to get six months here get a get a pass or leave for a while and then you're going to NAM as a platoon leader um so uh, we knew where we were going after six months and I thought my logic being what, I, what it was uh well, there's a company, or there's a unit here called the 197th Infantry Brigade at mm-hmm. Benning at the time, and it was how it housed most of the guys returning that were draftees from Vietnam and some other folks. So I figured, well, if I'm out there and I'm a platoon leader working in one of those companies, maybe I'll learn to pick up a few things from some of these fellows that have been there, and it can only help me, it can't hurt me. So I went to my commanders and said, hey, I want to transfer, I want to go there, I mean... You know, I appreciate this is a great gig, but in five months I'm going to be crawling through the jungle and whatever, whatever I'm supposed to do. And I'd like to go to the 197th and see if I can pick up a few, uh, few nuggets, if you will, to, to learn from. So uh, they reluctantly sent me, sent me out there, and I was there about four and a half months, and, uh, boy, that was an eye-opener. <laughs> oh, my God. How so? <laughs> well, a couple of things. One, uh, the stories I w- they would share with me, I thought, you know, this can't be real because you hear all these different things. And yeah. Mostly, keep in mind, most of these fellows were all returning uh, E3s, E4s, and E5s, and mostly draftees, and they just wanted to get out, didn't want to go, didn't want to, didn't want to get out. But they had some uh, some stories that were just, uh, you know, kind of like platoon. 
going into villages and stuff like that. You just hear these things, and, oh, geez. And then the big thing was living out in the bush, and they couldn't bathe, they couldn't eat, just all this stuff. And going through the jungle, and one minute's quiet, next minute, and all hell's breaking loose, and guys are flying everywhere, and so on. I thought, man, this just doesn't sound like something <laughs> I would have put myself into. And I supported, uh, during this, I supported ranger training. I'd take platoons and heavy companies out, and we'd be the aggressors against the rangers that were training up in the mountains and uh, Benning and then down in, the, down in Florida there. Mm-hmm. And I got to meet, because we worked with the helicopter pilots, I uh, got to meet and partner with, if you were, or interact with a lot of the uh, chopper pilots. And uh, they said, Larry, you know, you know we, they knew me a little bit after a while. I said, you, you wanted to fly, didn't you? you know, and you're now infantry, and you're going over as a platoon leader. There's the two most dangerous jobs are platoon leaders and chopper pilots. They said, but as a chopper pilot, you generally get to go back to a bigger base camp, a little more secure. You might get a shower every once in a while and some hot food. And, you know, all these things that make it life, you know, fun. And then when you fly, it's a whole different story. But, you know, you yeah. had a little bit of a peaceful set down. Uh, so I thought, well, why not? So I applied to that and got accepted. And I was uh, for the year of 19, this was uh, it's 1970. I reported out to Fort Dix in the, uh, the first week of January 1970. Not Fort Dix, I'm sorry. Uh, Fort Rucker. No, Mineral Wells, Fort Walters, Texas. Yeah. I n- never heard of that. It's been closed down a long time ago. Um, we, were sh- we were training so many chopper pilots that they just opened this huge old World War II base up and expanded it, and they had Gila ports everywhere. They were running three, four, five hundred guys through their own training. Wow. Program. They're just churning them out, just churning them out. Is this also... Um is this the time frame when they were hurting so bad that even enlisted guys, they were taking them and teaching them how to fly or something? I heard something about that. Yeah, they, uh, they I'm not the expert on this. Uh, they didn't, uh, they, they had a warrant officer program and uh, they expanded that greatly. And I think part of the requirements were you had to have at least a, uh, a high school degree. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You didn't have to be in the service. You could come into the service under the warrant officer program. And if you were in, of course, you could transfer if you qualified and so on. So, uh, but they had opened it up significantly back then to the warrant officer pro- for the warrant officer force. And of course, the officer corps too, as the junior officers, lieutenants and captains mostly. Um, and it was a nine month program. It was four and a half months at Fort Walters, Texas, Mineral Wells, um, and that was primary. You would spend several weeks in ground school, and then you'd go out and you would uh, fly in the morning and do schooling in the afternoon. In the morning, first, you had 16 or 17 hours, and some of the guys that are closer to it to me that hear this might think, well, it was longer than that or less, but I think it was upwards of 15 to 18 hours you, you had to qualify, or solo, I'm sorry, solo. Mm-hmm. And you'd work with your IP, your instructor, uh, uh, pilot, and uh, these little tiny helicopters, uh, and they were teaching you all the basics. And when he thought you were ready, he'd say he'd park it. It would be it would be running, and he'd get out and say, "Okay, take it around the the part here, and I'll go in and have a cup of coffee, and I'll come back and get you if you if you don't crash it." <laughs> Thanks a lot. <laughs> Thanks a bunch. You know, and you're never ready. At least I, that's the story you hear. And you know, I didn't think I was ready. Uh, and he just, he was a nice guy and he just got out and he walks about halfway across to get to the little shack we had with the coffee and donuts, turns around and he goes like that. And I'm, I'm a dead man. <laughs> I'm a dead man. Um, so when it took a while and the guy in the tower, I'm sitting there, you know, you got your controls and you're, you're doing this and you're just trying to get a light just a little bit, you know, you're just like, you know, like a bird trying to fly out of a nest. Yeah. And, um, 
the guy in the tire says, oh, I forgot my call sign. He says, are you ever going to take off? Or are you going to shut it down? You know, we got other guys that want to go. That's hilarious. <laughs> and I went, okay. And that was, I don't know, next thing I know, I'm, I'm not hovering. I'm just shooting right out of the, the pit, so to speak, there. And I went on up and uh, worked around the pattern and came back. And uh, we weren't allowed to land yet. You had to come down and, and just kind of hover across the field and go back out. You had to do three laps. Well, wait, you got to land at some point because you're the only yeah. one in there. Yeah, you're the only one in there, yeah. <laughs> well, they wanted you to do, I think it was two or three times around once you, once you went up, you know, to get used to it. So I got around and came down. And, of course, I'm going too fast and I'm trying to pull it this. And you're just kind of everywhere. And you go through it and you keep off. And by the third one, I say, hey, this ain't bad. This is kind of fun. And you're coming down and you're feeling confident. And I say, can I go one more? And the guy's like, no, it's not your turn. Just get back down, pick up your IP kind of thing. So you land and you pick him up. And then the rest, you, you, you know, after you've soloed, uh, it's a big deal. And they would make, uh, your classmates would take you to the club that, that afternoon or wherever and throw you in the pool. And mm -hmm. I don't know if that was every class did that, but there was some kind of a reward for you, uh, you know, oddball reward for you soloing. And uh, then you just finished your training uh, uh, for the next four hours. You learn how to basically um, get into tight spots. Uh, Any auto rotation? Yeah, you learn how to auto rotate. Okay. Uh, yeah, and there was a lot of other uh, basic things for those. Auto rotation was the big one because mm. um, you're going to need this at least once in your career. What's an auto? First time they tell you it's an auto rotation. Well, that's when you lose everything and you just fall to the ground and you try to fluff it at the bottom and walk away. Uh, isn't that you're trying to use the updraft to kind of? Get yeah. the props going again or something? Yeah. Well, in a basic auto, that's that's it pretty much. In a, in a basic auto rotation, uh, no matter how what brings about that you need to do it, uh, <clears throat> you got to drop your, well, if you're in a heel, you drop the collective, and it takes a lot, it uh, gives the free reign of the, of the uh, rotor blades there. And then you kind of loosen your, your uh, cyclic here, which is your stick, and then your pendulums, you just try to keep them kind of, flexible on those and not do two one one with the other you'd want to keep the the helicopter straight and just let it fall out of the sky and control your fall not have too much airspeed but don't have it but don't lose airspeed i think it was i can't remember the number you tried to shoot for and he maybe 60 uh knots or so but you needed to keep enough so as you got down close to the ground then you'd flare it when you get down about 15 20 feet or so maybe a little higher uh, yeah, that's probably not low enough, but it's a little higher than that. You'd flare, and a flare is where you take your cyclic and you pull it way back, and that brings the nose way up. And then you pull up on the collective, which creates all that downdraft and just creates a cushion there that just blows down there, and then you just level off your helicopter, and it just kind of settles. So you can do a... Uh, if you do a good controlled auto rotation, it's just like another landing. Hmm. But um, I had to do more than my share of those, and some of them were good and some of them weren't so good. Uh, but it was a way to get a, get a helicopter down because that's the only way you could get it down. You didn't wear parachutes. Nobody could bail out. So you ride it down and hope you walked away. But that was an auto rotation. You learned that very early on. And the IPs always, once they thought you were comfortable, they always liked to shut the engine off when you'd be at 2,000 <laughs> feet. First time they did that, you oh, my gosh, you've heard a little pucker factor. Pucker factor for sure. <laughs> Whoa, okay, thank you very much. I'd go get my shorts. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, no, that's, that's fine. And, and I, I saw a lot of these guys growing up. I grew up in um, the paint handle of Florida. And even today over my mother's house when I go and visit her, they're in the flight pattern. And the, about every, I don't know, 60, 90 seconds here comes another helicopter flying right over the house you know throughout the whole night um until they they do their night flights and everything and stop 
and and there were fields nearby where we would watch them do the auto rotations and stuff or do touch and goes and do um hot fuels and and all of that and uh for a period of time after i got i got out of the army in my first four year stayed out about 12 months realized what a stupid mistake that was and got back in in that time period there was a short amount that i actually fueled for the navy as well and i uh, got a chance to see stuff being a fueler and uh, you know for their helicopters and such so um, it made it made reading a little bit better, uh, but also it was something I wanted to do was to to go to flight school. I didn't pass the written exam. I missed it by I think it was like five points or something like that. And I should have retested and decided that obviously it wasn't for me and moved on. Um, but I'm fascinated by helicopters because they're kind of a freak, aren't they? They're not supposed to really be up in the air. No, they're not. They're not. Um, <clears throat> no, they're not supposed to fly. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. Yeah, you've got the we, we, on, a, on a single engine, a single rotor system. You got that, and it has a tendency to want the tail to go one way or the other, and that's why you got the tail rotor to offset that with your pedals, so, so you, that it doesn't just spin. Yeah, exactly. Like a top, if you're in a Huey and you lose your tail rotor, that that, that helicopter will just spin like that. Now you learn some maneuvers depending on how bad your situation is where you might be able to control that a little bit with your collective and your engine throttle mm -hmm. uh, but uh, if you lose your tail rotor it's really tough really tough to uh, keep that from spinning around you've probably seen some movies where they'll get hit and the helicopter yep. will start spinning well you know the, they never really made a, a movie about the helicopter war which someday I hope they do but what's happened there is among other things they've lost their tail rotor control of their tail rotor and it just whoom, starts going around uh, so but I uh, yeah, they're not made to fly, and uh, the good thing about a, hu or a, a, a helicopter is if you have a, a, any kind of situation where you do have to auto-rotate, as long as it's not severe, you probably got a pretty good chance of, if you, you know, pick the right area, getting down and, and walking. Away. Surviving, yeah. Yeah. If nothing else, um, you may have a bad back or whatever from the landing or whatever, but, you know, that's what the same thing that I had heard is that uh, chances of survival are a little bit better aircraft a little bit different you got to have a longer path in order to uh, in a airplane i should say you got to have a longer path in order to, to run it and land it and stuff yeah. whereas a helicopter yeah you got a lot of you got a lot of more opportunity for the helicopter like say if you can control it yeah <clears throat> uh, but but that pucker factor changes in situations that are in the book here um yeah. you know under stressful situations and i'm mm -hmm. sure that's what they were trying to do at certain occasions within shutting off the engine or whatever, simulate those so you could get prepared. Right, right. They were doing their best, even in, in primary. Not a lot. It was more to survive if you had an issue mm. from mechanical or whatever. Now, when we graduated from that, not everybody did. I mean, uh, not everybody did. They were actually lose some people out there because uh, they're running so many people through in primary from accidents and stuff. I don't, have, I don't know the statistics, but it was, uh, you know, we'd lose people. We didn't lose anybody there in my class. We had like 45 guys, but we did, a couple guys got cut because they didn't uh, uh, finish everything. Yeah. Flying's not for everybody. Right. Uh, <clears throat> so then we went to uh, Fort Rucker. Okay. And that's about four and a half, five months. There was when it really got intense. And you were, uh, you were transitioning to the Huey. Mm. Uh, you were learning the basics of weather and instrument flying. And then you were doing these... Uh, training in, in, in these little uh, IFR 
uh, flight simulators, and they've got them in the uh, in the museum now up there in Washington uh, because they're so ancient. But those are what <laughs> they used them in World War II to train pilots, and they used them in Korea, and then they used them out there in the in Rucker in, in the early days of. Uh, when I was going through flight. Are you talking about like the bubble helicopters? Uh, well, these are these little bubble, uh, totally enclosed airplanes. It's like a little airplane you might get in on a, on a carnival ride or something. Yeah. You sit inside and they take the thing, uh, the canopy, and they put it over you. And you're just, you're in there by yourself and it's all black except for a little light. And then you've got basic instruments and you've got a controller that's back there putting you through all kinds of situations. So you're learning how to wa- read your and use your instruments for... Uh, Without sight. Right. I have uh, instrument flight rules. Yeah, yeah, I got you. And this was our basic training. And they gave us enough of that. And then we would go out in the Hueys, and they'd put a hood over us and block the bubble and everything, so all you could see was your side of the cockpit that you were flying on, and you'd actually go up uh, flying like that to uh, simulate uh, IFR conditions. It'd be VFR, but you'd be out there doing that with your instructor. And this was designed to get us comfortable enough with the instruments and all in IFR-type flying. We didn't get what they called standard license back then, at least when I was going through it. They just wanted us to be dangerous enough to, to get up and, and handle it if we, danger maybe the wrong word, but trained enough to handle it <laughs> right. if we were IFR. So they gave us what they called tactical license. And when you got to your units, uh, the more weather, you, the more night flying you did and the weather flying you did, the more proficient you could get at, at your instrument flying. And there were some guys that were standard rating, especially if they'd been uh, flying for you know m- multiple years. So, but not everybody was standard back then. They were using tacticals too. Did you get to select then what <clears throat> aircraft based on some kind of scoring after that, or how did all that work? That's a good question. Uh, well, when I came through and I graduated, uh, got my wings in uh, late September, maybe first of October of of seventy, the nine month program. And I was very fortunate. I, I finished in the top three in my class. And what they were doing then is offering you to transition to another helicopter. Uh, everybody was trained on the Huey, and that's what you'd fly. Mm-hmm. But when I came through, they offered me and two other fellows uh, opportunities to, to transition into a Chinook, the CH-47, or the Cobras, which were taking over uh, the fleet as the gunships, the standard gunships. And the two of the guys took Cobras, and I took Chinooks. And, you know, everybody said, you're crazy. You don't want to fly a Cobra. I said, look, if I wanted to be a gunship, I'd have been flying a fighter plane a little yeah. faster. Yeah, it is. <laughs> and I thought of Chinook being uh, what it was. It was huge. It was powerful. It was uh, not used in, 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 as, uh, in as a tactical way all the time in, in real hot LZs. So there's a little bit more probability that I might come out the other side. And, you know, I got a little more around me. There's a tandem systems. There's... Uh, dual fuel and, and, and dual hydraulics. So I just thought it was a little better aircraft and um, much harder to f- learn how to fly than I thought. But anyway, I volunteered for it, and they just opened that up. They they had a, uh, again, before they, when they just opened that up prior to that, you had to have already done a tour in Vietnam to be considered for Chinooks. But uh, for some reason, they they had opened it up and, and they accepted me, and I went on to two and a half months of transitioning into the CH-47s at Fort Rucker. Finally graduated from that, and that was December of 1970. Uh, and then uh, I was married then, and that's another, we can come back to that maybe, but uh, <clears throat> I was married, been married about six months, and I was being shipped over to Nam on January the 3rd of uh, 71. And I had like 25, 30 days to get my stuff in order and uh, settle my wife in somewhere. So uh, we went to Panama City. My parents, dad had retired from the Air Force then uh, at, uh, in Bay County. 
and he was going to bought a lot on the uh, bay there was going to build a big house and retire and do all those things and they were living in an apartment at the time as he was building this place it's going to take him a year year and a half so i put linda next door to him in an apartment so that they would have a family member close while i was gone and uh, so we spent uh, three weeks almost four weeks there and then i shipped out now another funny story which is in you know, in the book but it's it's a little different. What you just even described is kind of in the book a little yeah. bit, yeah. Well, this is uh, in the book. It's a, a Navy club out in yeah. California. In reality, uh, my experience uh, was uh, <clears throat> New Year's Eve, uh, uh, you know, 1231 of 1970, and we were going to go out and party because I was going to uh, catch a plane on the 2nd, uh, leaving on a jet plane on the 2nd of January. And uh, so we decided to go out that night and ring in the new year at the Tyndall Air Force Base Officers Club. And that was back in, like, say, 70, Panama City. Panama City, mm -hmm. Tyndall. Mm -hmm. And back then, um, the, the Air Force uh, fighter pilots, their clubs were special to them. I mean, they were all designed for pilots. And they had para pilot paraphernalia everywhere. It was really cool. I mean, well, at Fort Benning, the infantry, below the main officers club, I'll digress a minute, but in the lower level, we had the officers... Uh, uh, bar, if you will. I can't remember if they had a name for it. But you go down there, and it was all kinds of paraphernalia associated with entry going way back. And they had a tradition with a bell over here in one corner of the place, probably hold about two, 300 guys. And if you walked in that door, there was always somebody stationed by that bell. If you walked in the door with your hat on that damn bell, it would go bing, bing. And you had to buy everybody was sitting or standing at the bar of <laughs> beer. <laughs> I did that the first time I walked in, so I never did it again. But lesson learned. Lesson learned. So there's always these traditions. Uh, <laughs> but the Air Force, oh my gosh, that 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 uh, club they had was just outstanding. And uh, for anyway, for New Year's Eve, uh, we decided to go, and uh, we went in my uniform because uh, it was a, a base, and uh, almost everybody there, all the fighter pilots with their dates, their wives, and some of the other uh, permanent party. It was a huge crowd. I couldn't even begin to guess at how big it was, but it was huge. And we ended up sitting at a big table with a bunch of other fighter pilots who were going through their uh, whatever kind of training they were teaching them at that point. Mm -hmm. And uh, early on in the conversations, I uh, you know, got to know a little bit about them, and they got a little bit of me. And when they found out I was shipping out in two days uh, to Nam as a helicopter pilot, uh, they started buying me drinks. And when the new year rang in, I don't know where I was. I had no age, but that didn't cost me a penny to drink and bring in the new year. Uh, so uh, that's how I rang in 1971 with a bunch of fighter pilots buying my wife and I drinks. And we just, we had a, we had a great time until I forgot what happened. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> yeah, and, but then I left on the, uh, on the second, I think it was, or maybe it was the third of, of January and <clears throat> went up to uh, Fort Dix. There's an air base up there next to Fort Dix and I can't remember the name of it. And we flew out of there on a Tiger airline with about 220 of us going to Nam. So we flew out of there at, well, it was late at night. It was dark. It was winter. And uh, I'm in the window, and um, I'm, I know a little bit about flying because I, you know, finished my all that training. And I see this, and the plane's just going on and on and on. I think, is he ever going to lift off? And Because uh, it must have been heavy with everybody on there and all our gear and everything. Yeah. And the fact is, they have lost one or two planes, but they've overloaded them with military guys. Uh, not, I don't know about then, but I've, uh, I've seen some uh, uh, stories about that and, and uh, documentaries about uh, overloading and then just can't get off the runway and then and then we have an accident. But I wasn't thinking that, but I kept thinking, boy, we're running out of runway here because I could see the light. Forget the color codes, but we hit the last color code that you had to be off wheels up, and we weren't wheels up yet. Uh, oh, God, I haven't even left the country, and I'm going to die. 
ah, it's funny now, it wasn't then, but we, we got up and we flew over to Alaska, got out for a couple hours, and then we flew from there to uh, Japan, and then we flew from there to uh, Tonsonut outside of Saigon. And when we got in airspace over Saigon, we were at altitude, and the pilot comes on, he says, oh, gentlemen, you're in your new home for whatever period of time. He said, if you want, you can look out the right or left, and you can see it. we're at about whatever it was, 20, 30,000 feet up. He said, we were going into the uh, holding pattern, and we've been instructed that the uh, Tonsonut is under uh, rocket attack, so <laughs> when we get clearance, uh, we'll, we'll, we're going to go down fast uh, and uh, roll up, and they're going to open the come, guys are going to come in and open the doors, and they're going to hustle you out, put you in the uh, in appropriate areas. Sure enough, when he said, okay, here we go, guys, and the you know, next thing you know, he's just falling right out of the sky, and we landed. And they taxied over, and all the doors opened up, and all of a sudden, we're comfortable. And when all the doors opened up, the heat, the humidity, the smell, it all just goes poof. Wow. Go, oh my God, I'm in Vietnam. <laughs> I probably just about everybody went there. If not everybody, we remember a lot of things, and that was probably one of them. And they yelled a few things at us, and they had us going out both sides, uh, in the front and the back, and down the ramps, and hustled us into a big uh, uh, hangar. Mm-hmm. And this hangar was huge. It didn't have aircraft. It was just processing hangar. And down the middle of it, like this, was a rope line. And on this side, we were hustled in on this side. And on this side was all the guys going home on the plane we just got off. Oh, wow. And, uh, you know, we were all lost and tired and, you know, and everything else. And a lot of these, well, not a lot, but some of these guys would come over the line and they were taunting us. Oh, it's a new guy. You know, the new Alabama guy. You know, you're going to love it here. You know, we're glad <laughs> to get out. And some of these guys looked like they'd just come out of a bush. I mean, they were really, just, some of them were really pretty ragged. And you go, oh, my gosh, I know I'm here now in between the weather and this and all that. So anyway, we were there. And uh, we were there a couple of days. And I got signed. Uh, and this was like January the, we just get along about, it's about January the 5th or the 6th um, that we actually got there. And we were taken across Tonsonut to an Army holding uh, depot where we would stay for a couple of days until they gave us our orders to go to whatever unit we yeah. were going to. At the time, we didn't know it. There were some other pilots in, in the group I went with. Uh, but all the pilots, uh, we were told later on, uh, which certainly included us, were being assigned up north to I-Corps, up near the DMZ, to the 101st Airborne. We didn't know, but there was a big operation that's in that book, Lamson, being planned and ultimately be kicked off, and they were going to need all the pilots they could get up in that region. So uh, I thought since I was going into you know, another Army surprise, oh, I'm going to Tonsonut, it's quiet down there in I Corps, it's the rice paddies, and the war's winding down, which it was. Nixon had started the uh, Vietnamization program at that point, and it was slowly picking up steam. And we all came down on orders to join the 101st, and everybody's like, where are they at? Well, those guys are still fighting, and they're up there in the I-Corps uh, in Ayashaw Valley and Fubai and uh, DMZ and Quang Tree, and, yeah, they're, they're an active unit. They were one of the best units over there. Of course, guys are going to get mad at that, but they were one of the they – were, they were a good unit. There were many good units, probably all of them, but uh, they had – at that time of the war in 1971, they were still actually going out looking for bad guys, where a lot of units were standing down, getting ready to go home and turn it over. Uh, these guys were still looking for a fight. Um, and, and they <coughs> could find it if they wanted to. Uh, so anyway, we were going up there, and boy, you talk about being dejected. Let's see, I get drafted. I can't get. I can't go to flight school. <laughs> I go to the infantry. Now I'm a pilot, and now I'm over here, and they're sending me the hundred and first. Okay, can it get any better? Well, yeah, it did. Lumps on. <laughs> Just didn't know it yet. So uh, ended up up there. Um, 
flew in the middle of the night, and they, they trucked us up to a place outside of, we landed at Fubai, which is right next to Way, and that was the main operational area for the 101st. Um, and it was situated between the uh, coastline, flatlands, and then you got into some hills, and then you got into the mountains, and the Asheville Valley was all along those mountains up to the DMZ. Um, so we were there, flew in there that night, and then I don't know what time it was, but they loaded us all into these deuce and halves, and they trucked us through uh, Fubai and Way, and on the other side of Way to Camp Evans, which was uh, the 101st uh, fire base, a big one. Um, you had Fubai, and then you had Camp Eagle, which was uh, where the general and his staff and some infantry units were, and then you had Evans, which was north of Way, and it was the furthest most big base that they had at the time. And they, sh they shipped us up there and, and put us in, in barracks, and it was, you know, you were, you were in on then, and you were out there where uh, you were potentially uh, could be shot at or whatever, but it was pretty quiet. Uh, and I said, what in, the, what in the heck am I doing here? I'm a pilot. Why am I at my unit? You know, and the other guys, the other fellows were piloting. Well, the, the uh, 101st has this uh, program called CERTS, Screaming Eagles Replacement Training School. And everybody that comes into country goes to CERTS for a week, and then they go to their unit. I said, my God, it never ends. <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> it's a good idea, and it, it, it did help. It, I'm not it, was, it was like to acclimate you to the unit or to Vietnam or both? Both. Uh, okay. They, they wanted to kind of get you acclimated to the weather. Mm. Uh, they wanted to reacquaint you with weapons, mm -hmm. basic booby traps, uh, let you shoot, uh, and they get, and they had these maps and then some topography stuff to give you an idea where you were and the activity in the area and some of the units you might engage while you're there and uh, you know health issues and stuff like that and uh, they took small groups out I think it was like the third or fourth day where there they figured you know you've you've had enough getting used to it and now you're gonna you know, really try to get used to it. and they put together small platoons that would take them out on the other side of the wire to patrol out there at early night and set up a L-shaped ambush just to get the experience, although they didn't expect any activity or anything. And me being an infantry officer, I was so fortunate to be chosen to do that twice. Well, you're gonna lead the patrol, but you're gonna have experienced NCOs. And I said, okay, that's good, because they're gonna run and I'm just gonna hide behind <laughs> them, to do whatever they tell me to do. Uh, so the first time we went out, uh, it was probably about 20 of us with a couple NCOs and uh, myself, and senior NCO, I think it was an E6, was leading it. And uh, we got out there, walked around, did the little combat routine. And then they set it up as in a, in a loose, big L-shaped uh, facing out. And said, we're gonna be here a couple hours and set out some trip wires, no, no claim wires or anything. And said, uh, don't anybody go to sleep because I won't be walking over this line. You go to sleep, you're in deep trouble and you know, blah, blah, blah. So uh, that went okay. And when it was done, they, they broke, uh, broke it up and we went back and we probably got back in 12, 1 o'clock in the morning. And it wasn't the next night. The night after that, they came back and said, well, you're taking out another group. I said, come on, guys, this is getting old. And I said, you're trying to get me shot over here? And I just, you know, and he, I don't know, you're, you're the captain, you're infantry, and you may be a pilot, but you could end up doing infantry stuff, and this is good for you, captain, trust me. I mean, I was a lieutenant, first lieutenant, and this is good yeah. for you. And, uh, but they knew that you were infantry, and, oh, yeah. and that was the key here. That was the key. And uh, I was the only uh, pilot that was infantry. Mm. I don't remember, I, I, I think most of the other fellows were either warrant officers and or uh, intelligence officers or artillery, but I was the only guy in that group that was an aviator that was an infantry guy. And the only officer in, in this group that was being processed at the time. So uh, they went out again, and this was interesting. <laughs> Same scenario. It was a different group of other guys, but me and the other guys and some NCOs. 
we got out there, we lay down in ambush. And uh, I don't know, it's about an hour or so. Anyway, it's dark. You know, it's dark. Not very, not much light up there uh, in that part of the country at the time. <clears throat> and uh, somebody along the line got excited, heard something, and started shooting out in front of us. And then the whole line opened up. It was just M uh, M-16s, and we had one, maybe two M-60s, all just spitting tracer rounds out there in front of us. And, and uh, it went on for a little while, and uh, the NCOs finally got them calmed down. And, and I uh, said, so what? You know, trying to figure out what's going on. And anybody hurt, anybody hurt, what's going on? They couldn't figure it out. Uh, but we didn't take any fire back. So they said, well, it's time for us to go back into base camp. So we uh, are back into camp. So they rounded us up, and we, you know, we, we hustled back inside the water. Next morning, they set out a patrol, and it turns out it was a water buffalo, and we just blew the hell out of them. No. <laughs> Somebody got a little excited Somebody there. Somebody got a little excited. Uh, so that was my, uh, my infantry experience. Uh, for the war, <laughs> I did infantry duties for the rest of my tour, but that was all aviation. Was uh, was when I saw action actually. But well, luckily you passed then. I passed, and uh, I, I thank God I wasn't the guy that pulled the trigger. Yeah, <laughs> I think oh, did they worked. try to find him? Uh, no, I don't recall them trying to do that. The, you know, we were talking afterwards. The NC and your NCO and I, and we were kind of laughing over a beer the next day or later that night. Even he said that happens a lot out here. He yeah, said, we would rather them get used to it that way than you know do that on a real patrol. He said because that could cost you know people lives. You got to be really disciplined out there. Yeah, I mean those men that that uh, in Vietnam that were were, were Bush were infantry. The uh, these guys uh, to a person they just they're special people. Mm -hmm. uh, they had to put up with a lot. They uh, endured a lot. They weren't appreciated very much when they came home and took many years. And I think the old day, some people just kind of blow it off. But these guys were really, uh, they really put it on the line for each other. And towards the end of the war, it got a little more drug-related, a little more racial-related. And platoon, on one hand, in my opinion, did a little service to the veterans. It, I think it gave people a better perspective of what happened. But I also think it tended to reinforce some of that drug and racial stuff, which... In the movie, I thought was a little over the top, personally, but I did enjoy the movie. I mean, enjoyed the one. I thought it was well done. It was the first one I saw that you know, kind of gave people an idea of what Nam was really like, and um, reawoken my uh, uh, experiences, if you will. And uh, <clears throat> I just thought, you know, he did a pretty good job of capturing that, but taking it over the top didn't help as much. Mm -hmm. with, with that, with that, I, I that's my personal opinion. But the, so there was some of that towards the end. But when these guys would go out. I mean, they were all in. You, 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 had to, you had to be on your game. I'm not saying even out on patrols they didn't smoke some pot or do whatever they did, but uh, they had to be on their game because they could end up in a bag or they could put other people in a bag, and that just wasn't the, the thing to do. So the, these men in the infantry that, uh, that, that put up with that all across the country the entire war, they're just special people. Yeah, so. oh, I 100% agree. I think uh, it's part of the reason... When you reached out to us, it was um, such an easy fit because I swear, I think we just had a conversation maybe a week prior to that, um, Paul and myself around, we need to, to really reach out and see if we can find more Vietnam veterans to invite to the show because there is a story that's going to be lost that mm -hmm. we really need told. And you're right. I think when a lot of the guys came back, um, because of what was happening after the war, they tend to hide that or bury that as part of their history. Mm -hmm. So you have CEOs, executives out here, you know, or blue collar workers, normal everyday people that um, 
if you didn't know a family member, may not ever know that these people served because right. they buried it. Exactly. I think, uh, I'll speak for myself, but I know a lot of guys the same way. When you came home, you just wanted to forget about it. You know, you always hear these stories about coming back and things happening, and uh, there's a lot of truth to that. Uh, I think the, from my perspective when I came back uh, through uh, uh, Seattle, there's, a, there's an airbase or something there that they sent us into, processed and then took us to the airport to fly home. I flew to Atlanta, then to Panama City, back to my, back to my pick up my wife and, you know, recover before I reported to Fort Benning for my next duty stage. There was uh, a lot of animosity displayed uh, at the civilian airport there in, in Seattle. It wasn't so much throwing stuff or yelling. It was just the looks you got mm-hmm. from so many people. I mean, all age groups. It was the younger people that were the most... Uh, aggressive towards trying to make you feel, you know, not appreciated. Uh, and I saw some stuff and experienced a few things, but um, anyway, it was just, you just didn't kind of expect that. And it was pretty real for a lot of guys who haven't forgot it to this day. And uh, <clears throat> I could go on and on about that aspect of it. Too. Well, it's, it's an important aspect. And um, I mean, yeah, we'll, we'll dive into some other stuff, but I think in, 73, it was, again, an impressionable... Vietnam was a very impressionable thing on me as a young man because my father, um, having served, and then, of course, I was starting to reach the age of, is this war still going to be here? I mean, you've got a 20-year war that we just ended, and and I think as a youth, a member of the youth, I think we were wondering the same thing, of what we were hearing about Vietnam and such that, you know, um, I remember, you know, probably 10 years old, 11 years old, wondering... You know, is this going to still be around? That was when you got out, by the way. <laughs> and um, so I ended up joining in 79 and didn't leave until 80. And the guys who were my uh, NCOs and basic training and the people who I arrived in my first unit, majority of them were Vietnam veterans. Um, they were the people who actually trained me to be the NCO I believe I became. And I owe everything to those guys because they came with the attitude that you just described. I was in combat arms, and they came back with the, you know, if we're going to train you, we're going to make you understand that everything you do has consequences, you know, and and you need to make sure that you're making the right choices and and right decisions and stuff. So um, it was a very impressionable time frame uh, for me. And movies were coming out. Of course, a lot of movies tend to happen five, six years, especially after the war or right near a war ends. In this case, Apocalypse Now, um, Platoon came out later, but then uh, what was another? Um, Deer Hunter? Deer Hunter. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. That one, like, <laughs> yeah. really, right? And and those things, when I watched them, I realized that, you know, wow, um, there's Hollywood mixed in, mm-hmm. but there's a lot of reality that's there as well. Yeah. Yeah, I think when people see those, I, uh, I'm speaking for myself now, like Platoon. Mm-hmm. And uh, Platoon is what reactivated me to uh, pursue trying to tell the story I carried. When I came back, I put everything away, threw it away, or gave it away, and didn't. Most you know, do, compressed. Yeah. You know, they compress it, you know, yeah. and try to push it away. But I thought in the back of my mind, I always carried this uh, idea of, I'm a big movie guy, mm-hmm. uh, since I was a little boy, and I thought, you know, someday... Maybe they'll write a movie about or produce a movie about the helicopter aspect because it was iconic to the war. But I didn't want anything to do with it back then, so I buried all that stuff. I had trouble for the first couple years, but uh, I pretty much managed to bury it. I saw a platoon when I was 86, 
walked out of that theater, Linda and I did, and walked out of that theater, and I looked over at her, and I thought, Linda, I said, I just came back from Vietnam a second time. I mean, it wow. just really woke stuff up. And sometime after that, it, it got me thinking, well, that was about the ground infantry fellows. Uh, what about a movie about uh, helicopter pilot? So long and the short of it, I wrote a letter to Stone. I knew that he had produced that one, had a second one at that time in production or post-production, uh, which was born on the 4th of July. Didn't know it at that time, but <clears throat> and that he was supposedly going to do a trilogy, a third one about Nam. Oh, well, that's really the third one. Maybe I'll do a helicopter. So I wrote him this letter, query letter and uh, sent it out that I had an idea about it and gave him a little storyline. And it was two, three, four weeks later, I get a letter from the guy. And uh, he says, well, you know, I, I am in post, I guess it was post-production of uh, my next movie. He didn't name it at the time. He says, coming out pretty soon. And I have a third storyline concept that I'm going to go in. It doesn't involve helicopters. He said, but you got a great idea, and I agree with you. He said, uh, you know, what you might want to do is write a book about it and or, you know, write a screenplay. And if you don't know how to write one, he said, uh, hook up with some screenwriters and see what you can come up with. And then, you know, see if you can get an agent or, or market it yourself. And uh, he said, it's, you know, it's a tough road to hoe. And I, but he says, I think it's a great story that you potentially have there. Then so he gave me some suggestions and some context. And making a lot of short, I took all that, I put it aside for about a year or so. And then I thought, you know. I'm going to give it a shot. So I went out and I read some books about screenplay. I read, I uh, bought uh, Bugsy, the screenplay that Warren Beatty had written, because mm -hmm. mm -hmm. I was told that's a, a good one to learn from. I read it twice. Oh, yeah, this is, you know. So anyway, I sat down and I wrote screenplay. Um, <clears throat> and it was called The Flying Pachyderms. My unit was Pachyderms. But it was still about Huey assault pilots. Uh, and, and it all centered around Lomson at the time. And I wrote it. And then I passed it around for a good while, and people were all coming back with suggestions and everything, but and making it better. Uh, but everybody said, you know, Larry, this would make a great book. You could really dive into some of these people and make it uh, probably more interesting than you than uh, than a screenplay. And and they all suggested if you know if this don't work, write a book. And I'm talking to a lot of people over a period of time. And when it was all, uh, and I thought, okay, I'm fine, but I'm kind of tired. and I want to see this in a movie. You know, what do I know? It's I'm, I'm in the movie business, but what the heck. Uh, so anyway, I, uh, I decided to uh, market it myself, and I wrote a query letter to 10 production companies out in Hollywood. And uh, that would have been in uh, the early 90s, 92 or 93. Well, and prior to that, I'd entered it in a screenwriting contest here in, um, in uh, Atlanta, Georgia. It's called the Southeast Screenwriters Contest down in Atlanta. And it won one honorable mention with some good comments. Not some weren't, you know, but the others were really nice and they got honorable mention. I thought, well, gee, maybe an agent will pick me up and I'm on my way. Most people don't know that Georgia is like a second L.A. Yeah. I mean, there are a lot of movies that are actually filmed here. We have studios right down the road here. and, and A lot uh, of production. In a lot state. of production, yeah. A bunch. And at one time, it's, sometimes it's, it bounces between one and two. I don't know if you're... I, I didn't know that yeah, part. Yeah. yeah, I kind of follow it, and uh, I don't know how they measure it, but it bounces between one and two sometimes. Canada, up in Vancouver, is another big spot. Didn't know that. Yeah. They call that North Hollywood in California. Yeah. Or maybe it's in Vancouver. They call themselves North Hollywood. <laughs> but uh, anyway, I, I uh, tried to market it. I heard back from three companies, mm -hmm. and they all wanted to read the screenplay, so I sent each one of them a copy. And I heard back from two, uh, you know, within a month, maybe, give or take. And they, you know, good work, but, you know, we're, we're not interested, but you know, keep pushing. And then I was, <laughs> this is a good story. I was taking a shower on a Saturday afternoon after doing my yard work, and I was all lathered up. 
and uh, just relaxing. It was in the summer. And Linda comes in and says, Larry, you got a phone call. And I said, well, just take a message. I'm not quite done yet. She says, you're going to want to take this call. And I said, who could that be? And she said, Larry, you're going to want to take this call. I said, well, just let me finish. She says, no, you need to get it now. It's a lady from Hollywood. Wants to talk to you about your screenplay. <laughs> shower still running, soap dripping. I'm standing in the bedroom there on the phone. And Linda's there trying to drive me with a towel. I ended up talking with this lady from Hollywood for about an hour. She worked for Biltmore Pictures. Okay. which is still a, it's a big production company and still, still in business. And they're the ones that produced Bugsy and, uh, they did, um, uh, Sniper. I'll come back to that. And they, they said, well, we're interested in your screenplay. I need to get some more information. So she talked with me for a good while and said, we'll get back to you. I was about maybe three, four weeks later, I hear back from her and said, we're really interested. We're bumping this up into the higher echelon that, you know, actually makes some decisions. We might option it from you, which would have been great. Uh, so this is about three, four weeks after that. I hear back from them, and they said, well, Larry, we, we're, we're going to hold off. She said, it's, uh, you know, we really like it. It's really good, but we uh, do have a war genre in post-production. We're coming out very shortly. We think it's a hit, uh, going to be a hit, and if it does well, we already have the sequel on the board, and we just we don't want to take on another war genre right now. I said, okay, fine. I appreciate that. They were really nice to me. And sure enough, about two, three, four weeks after that, Sniper with Tom Berenger came out, and it was a big hit. And so... Here's Tom Berenger in Platoon, and then Sniper, and I lost out to Tom with my screenplay. But, and it was a big hit, so they did a sequel. And I've been told they've done multiple sequels, uh. sequel two. But anyway, that was my big, and by then I just, I'm done. I just put everything away. And said, it's all about timing with Hollywood, too. Not, not only just inside, but externally as well, right? What's yeah. going on in the world at the time frame? Will it actually be marketable? Yeah, there's a, I couldn't even begin to uh, talk intelligently about how all that's done, uh, there's a certain amount of who you know mm. uh, associated with anything in life, really. But it's it's what's going on in the world at the time. And, you know, back then, the Vietnam War still wasn't very popular uh, and was kind of coming out of it in the latter part of Reagan's uh, presidency, the second half. So uh, there was probably a lot of factors weighing on that. And maybe it just wasn't as good as they thought or I thought. But uh, I think there's been more movies made now. You know, I mean, uh, gee, the best one I think made so far, in my own opinion, is uh, We Were Soldiers once with Mel Gibson. I thought that was an incredible book and yeah. movie and did a lot to uh, portray what really was like over there for men on the ground. And to some extent, the pilot's trying to get in and out because one of the pilots that didn't, wasn't in the movie, but the, one of the pilots that kept going in, uh, bringing them ammunition at night, and then the next day, the, the major, he was, a, he was awarded the Medal of Honor several years after the war. He's long since passed, but he was a legend within the Hugo community. Uh, so <clears throat> it was it was a great movie, but still they haven't made a movie about hel helicopters. They need to make right. they just need to make one about that. Yeah. Right, you got Top Gun. Why don't you have a army helicopter movie? Exactly. I think there's some out there being kicked around, but uh, don't know. Yeah. But it would be nice to see that portrayed because uh, you know I've had a lot of people who have read my book after they read it just come and say, paraphrasing, "Geez, I had no idea. I, I, I don't know. How'd you do that? I mean, yeah. how are you even here?" So, I mean, uh, so uh, yeah, there's some really dramatic stuff. That can I, I want to get into one of those, if you don't mind. Okay. If this would be a good lead-in. Um, because, well, there's a couple of things. And you mentioned it very early on about how there were Hilo pilots and then there was Chinook. And, you know, you ended up going to Chinook, but you took some of the stories of other pilots and stuff and incorporated in them. Mm -hmm. The Lolo ground action uh, mm -hmm. chapter of Chapter 15, how much of that was actually real before I get, in, get more into that? Well, a couple things. Uh, Lolo was, was a real fire base and a real action. 
the first day, it was in March, and I don't remember the exact date, and the fellows out there that might hear this that know more know about it, it was the 3rd or the 4th or the 5th of March, the, the helicopter assault units, Huey units, that were tasked with getting the Arvin in to set up the base initially and secure that, that hilltop, if you will, or that ridgeline, Lolo, they took the most extensive uh, losses in one day ever recorded in aviation history for the Army. Before that or after that, uh, they lost uh, 11 Hueys. That mm. day, 11. Uh, <clears throat> and uh, some, gal- some fellows didn't make it back alive. And of course, some were wounded. Uh, and then at some point, it's a little fuzzy, but over the next couple of days, they were able to get enough people in to, to basically secure the area. And then they brought in the Chinooks, uh, probably the next day, uh, to bring in the supplies that we could get them in there. Same, same LZs? Yeah, same LZ, Lolo. Get in there, bring them in water blivets, bring them in ammunition, bring in their 105s, ammunition for 105, building no supplies, uh, you know, uh, sandbags and so on and so forth. And we would do sling loads. You've seen the schnooks mm-hmm. where they can, mm-hmm. they're pretty powerful. We could do usually two slings, sometimes three, depending on how heavy what we were lifting and, and what we were taking in. Uh, but we were tasked with... Uh, I was in the, what was the 101st Airborne Division, the 159th Aviation Battalion, three Chinook companies, A, B, and C. Each had 16 uh, Chinooks. They didn't all function or fly at the same time. <laughs> uh, and I make a point in the book about that. Uh, but, uh, and we, we didn't, uh, at least A Company, I went to A Company, the Bacoderms. Uh, and when I, was, when I got there, uh, we didn't have a full contingent of pilots, and people were rotating in and rotating out, and that's why they're trying to send everybody they could up to the 101st. So we had enough to meet our obligations, I guess. I wasn't in charge of operations at that time. But um, you know, we, we uh, were in it from the beginning, back to Lolo. Um, we went in, I don't know which companies went first. When it was our turn, I was in line, I was second or third behind the first time I went in there. Uh, uh, the guys in our company we usually took in maybe three, four, five Chinooks, and we'd be spaced way out. And we'd go in at altitude. We'd go in at five, six, seven thousand feet uh, because it was pretty rough by then. When Lola was put in about three weeks into the operation, and it had already gone to hell in a handbasket every firebase. So it was intense the whole time when you crossed the border in Laos. Into Laos, I think I've pointed out in the book, and you, we thought you, know, you got a 50 50 chance of coming back alive. That's how bad it was. Uh, but anyway, we, when it was our turn to go in, we were at altitude, and this is my first time in, and and uh, we get, we got over it, and we did a maneuver that, as a Chinook, uh, we didn't learn prior to being in Vietnam, and I think some of the guys had learned it the previous year when they were trying to get in and out of the ash shell, ripcord and places like that. They were under fire, and they may have learned this technique there. I, I don't know. But the guy, the, our, our company, when the, the lead ship where it was flying, got to the point where he needed to go down to the base, if, if this was the fire base and we'd be coming in like that, he'd see it and he'd get over the base and we'd be five, six, seven thousand feet up above everything they were being shot at down on the ground. And he would just push the cyclic forward into about a 25, 30 degree angle downward, drop the thrust rod and just fall out of the sky. And we, we would just spiral down. And, oh, and, yeah, and you're, you're, you're fighting the fighting's wrong. You're controlling the controls or the best you can, trying to keep the rotor blades from going in the red line and literally possibly flying right out of their 
holdings up there. So you're, you're constantly uh, fighting the controls to some extent to keep it from shaking apart. But you want to get down fast. And you want to get down straight. straight. Is that why? Yeah. You want to get down, at least in this case, because uh, uh, the faster you were falling, uh, the less chance you would get hit. But when you got close, 1,000 AGL above ground or a little less, it didn't really matter. That's the time you started fighting the controls to level, try and level off, slow down, and set up your final little approach into the base. Uh, so it was a free fault. You got low, get it under control, get it, flare it, punch your button, drop it, and get out, pull your thrust rod, and just do an elevator takeoff and get the, get the hell out of there. <laughs> Oh my gosh! Uh, we we went in the first time. Did you do troop loads as well uh, on the Chinook? Uh, not in, not in hot LZs. No. Okay. Too many guys could be lost if they got if they went down. Sure. We just did externals in okay. hot LZs. Yeah. Uh, so uh, everything in Laos for us, to my knowledge, at least that I flew or flew in groups with, we it was always sling loads inside Laos. When we get back to Quezon, you know, we could take internals and externals. Because and, uh, as that operation went into the second month, I digress again, but uh, we were, as Chinooks, we were taking back wounded Arvins from Quezon area, some of the helipads in the main base, back to Quang Tree on the coast for better medical attention and ultimately move them down south to, to do what they need to do for them. And we'd put 25, 30 of them on a, on a Chinook and, and on their stretchers and ferry them back. So uh, that's, that was an internal. But uh, no, not in Laos. It's all external. But coming into there, we first guy got all shot up, got out of there. <laughs> Second guy got all shot up, got out of there. <laughs> Third guy being me got all shot up and got out of there. And then they called it off. We were taking too many hits, and we all limped back to Quezon and reassessed the situation. Another time, I don't remember which mission it was into that place because I ended up going in there a couple times over a week or so. Eastern time is a little, and that's one of the missions that's portrayed a little bit in there. Um, I went in and um, we got hit down the left side of the helicopter uh, by small arms machine gun fire as we were gotten real close. And the guy flying in the left seat got hit with it. We got hit in the front with the tracers. And uh, when they exploded, a whole bunch of smoke came into the cockpit. Mm and little particles got in, of plexiglass got embedded in the smoke. And uh, the fellow flying with me, got, he, got, he got a lot of shrapnel. Our left door gunner got hit in the head. And uh, we, uh, my crew chief, uh, we lost AC control of the, of the rotor planes. Uh, the instruments were all shot up. There was bullet holes all down the left side. And it was a little hectic there for a while, but uh, I managed to stabilize it, punched off the load before we got down any further and tried to stabilize to you know, get the hell out of there quick. And uh, the crew chief, uh, he, he pulled the pilot out and put him in the back, and the other gunner worked on him because the left guard, the left door gunner was gone. <coughs> and uh, he helped me fly back. And it was tough. It was tough. Cause, and we made a running landing at uh, Quezon and, uh, and just sat there at the controls just going, oh. I mean, I could have, I took a sweat bath. You know, you just, you, just, you don't have... At least in my case, uh, when that happened, it was all in slow motion. You had, uh, didn't have time to think about it. You just had to react. And that's where your training comes in. Training, yeah. you know, you may joke as a young guy in the early part of your training, but that is serious stuff if you're going to be in a combat uh, role. Because when that kicks in, it's all autopilot for you. And without that, you, know, you probably make a lot of mistakes or may not make it. But that all kicked in, and I just luckily was able to stay in focus enough and I don't want to name his name, but the crew chief uh, did a wonderful job helping me. 
See, in a Chinook, you have AC and DC control of the rotor blades, and DC's battery-driven. There's a bunch of towels down there on the main console between the two seats. AC, it's automatically controlled like uh, anything would be on autopilot. And uh, when that's shot out, you've got to manually <coughs> control the two engines or the two blades to keep a certain speed with uh, the blades. And uh, he was doing that because uh, without that, it, I couldn't do everything else and do that too. <laughs> At least I didn't think I could. And uh, he helped he helped manage that, and along with some other things, monitor what instruments we had left and things. And and we got back uh, and uh, landed. And back then, you got all the 24 hours off <laughs> if you could still walk and talk and didn't have any bullet holes. In my case, in that, I got a lot of little plexiglass particles that were embedded in that smoke. Mm -hmm. It's just like it was like having sand thrown in your eyes. And uh, I think I've got a yeah, story. Yeah, you do in have you do have a story in here about mm -hmm. that exactly mm -hmm. what you just described. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was getting worse as I got closer. I was able to get down, and I, mean, I could see, but it was it was, it was you know, really. And uh, the medics got to me, and they flushed my eyes out with a bunch of water. I was medevac to Da Nang, and I was down there a couple of days, and they flushed it out and everything, and uh, was back on, back in duty and within two or three days. I didn't have any damage. I just had to get all those little particles flushed out. Uh, so that was my second or third time in there. And I had some other close calls, too. But, yeah, I thought that was a pretty interesting story to potentially embed in there somewhere. It, it, it is. And in this case here on the little ground action of Chapter 15, um, you know, the character ends up crashing, and um, because of that, I mean, it's a pretty hot LZ, and um, when that happens, they end up, the character ends up going over to the uh, the Arvin um, commander or whatever and grabbing the uh, the radio and calling in for fire because the, you, you, you mentioned within the book that uh, part of the challenge during the Vietnam War is that um, they couldn't communicate effectively with the Americans in order to call in fire. Yeah. And so at that time frame, since your character was shot down at the, the LZ and they were trying to basically survive uh, from the firefight that's going on and it's really, really hot and you wanted to call it in, you get the big boys coming in and uh, drop some heavy payload, uh, payloads and everything else, even though you got Cobra support. And um, and then end up getting rescued out of there. Yeah, it breaks the the bad guys back for yeah. a while. Yeah, yeah, just for a short time frame. So so was that part true? Was it, did that, you get hit on the ground and? Uh, that incident didn't happen to me. That is a historical incident. Yeah, uh, I can't remember. Uh, it's it's Firebase Thirty or Thirty One. Uh, uh, one of the Hueys got shot down, and the crew crashed on the base, and it was under all that. And one of the uh, gunners or crew chief uh, worked his way over to the uh, people uh, there that were in communication with the facts flying above trying yeah. to get effective fire into the bay, into the area. And uh, he took the radio and he made contact with FAC. And then the FAC and, and this young man worked together identifying targets and bringing them in. And they finally broke the back of the uh, NVA at that point. Uh, we... We came in uh, either, well, it was, it was after that action. Uh, the, the next day, I think, because he, he ended up staying there, I want to say a day or two, and this is historically, uh, mm -hmm. I'm not making this up, uh, but I thought that was just so interesting, and I wanted to take that and embed it in. The, I put my character in that situation, because I wanted everybody that read the book to live through the character and just feel 
what he was feeling, see what he was seeing, deal with what he was dealing with, and experience anything and everything I could give him that you know made the story flow. And uh, I wanted it to have some semblance of historical uh, accuracy and and uh, fact. When when you read this book and you like me, you get transported to a different place. Um, what you guys were experiencing in these hot LZs, the chaos. Um, I mean, the rounds hitting the aircraft and making it sound like popcorn. The descriptions that were going on there, the amount of tracer fire, uh, tracer rounds that were going by, RPGs that were just missing you by inches, or you know whatever the case may be. And in these cases, there were um, there were multiple waves of Hueys that were coming in, trying to drop in the troops. And usually, the first wave seemed to be relatively safe. It seemed like every time I read um, each one of the LZ. So each story that you guys came in and you guys did this over and over, which I'll touch on in a minute, but it seemed like the first wave would come in and they would take notice of, oh, all right, we've got transport coming in. Um, so the first one, you were good. If you were in the second wave, God help you. If you were in the third wave, holy cow. Yeah, that's the way they work. They figure if, they, if we put some guys on the ground on the first wave, we had committed and we would do what we could to get them out or supply them. And they knew that. Uh, no man left behind kind of thing. Yeah. That was pretty much their scenario. That wasn't to say a first guy's in might not get shot at occasionally or, or even come under a heavy attack, but normally it was kind of, I won't say quiet, but, uh, you know, suck us in and then give us hell. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and I thought what was interesting, too, is that um, I have a kind of a non-combat story that I found that was kind of interesting years later and uh, when I was serving with 11th ACR in which... Um, I'll get to my story and I'll come to yours is that we, <clears throat> I saw some troops, they were dropping off in East Germany. They were dropping off, you know, troops every so often that were fully combat loaded. And, you know, uh, I was in a tower and that we were trying to figure out what to call back to the rear to let them know. We thought, you know, is this World War Three about ready to go down? But then they weren't standing there in, in a position as if they were going to lend a fight. And I heard choppers coming in and um, it was Cobras in a, a Blackhawk. And um, evidently it was a congressman. Mm -hmm. But um, we had to go set up the LZ and everything. I had no idea that this was going on. I'm radio back. The LT, you know, had no idea back in ops. He's telling me he has no clue what's happening. I'm telling him to hear him choppers. What's, who's coming in? I don't know if he was, you know, trying not to tell me who it was or whatever for fear of what goes over comms. But still, I found it interesting that they knew before I knew and it seemed that same way in Vietnam that in many cases somehow, you know, they had word. Now, we experienced this also in Afghanistan where we had, you know, individuals that were serving alongside us and they were passing on information. And, you know, and I'm assuming that was a lot of the case, but it also makes you wonder just how much information gets passed. Well, that's a good question. And um, <laughs> there's a good story there. I want to, I, I cannot, <laughs> I spent a year there, but I still can't pronounce uh, Vietnamese names very well. But they had a high-level spy in Saigon during the whole war. His, his agent number was C, Z21, and he was known as Pham Zun An. And he, uh, he, he had access to uh, MACV headquarters. He was a reporter kind of a guy, and he was doing all kinds of reporting. So he had access to a lot of people. Uh, and he had worked his way in and created a huge network down there within MACV and, and, and in other places. 
And for years, he would be passing information through their chain, which was a marvel, marvelous is the wrong word, but a very intricate way of getting messages through the south up to the north, NVA headquarters areas, uh, about what was going to happen or what was going on or who was doing what. And he had kept them in loop uh, before we even kicked off Lomson. We used to joke sometimes in the club at night, trying to relax, that these guys seem to know more about what's going on over there than we do. Mm. And uh, little did we know at the time, uh, and it didn't come out until years later, uh, that this guy was feeding them some information. He, he, uh, he survived the war. He was, he was a hero in North Vietnam at the time, or after the war. And I think he helped collaborate uh, on the writing of a book about it. And I don't remember the name of the book, but uh, it's a, it, that, that actually happened. Wow. There, well, there was a guy that came on our podcast years ago. Um, gosh, and I, I wish I could remember um, the gentleman's name. It's uh, terrible that I can't. Um, but when he came on the show, he had talked about a particular battle in which um, he was Max Sog. Uh, B. Sagan. And so um, at this particular battle, he was carrying a radio and he ended up taking out um, a number of troops that he didn't know the, the size of what they ran up against. It turns out it was like a brigade size element. Mm-hmm. And he ended up taking out hundreds of guys in this battle fight and everything. And um, later on, met the commander of the North, North Vietnamese who recognized him as the radio operator. (laughs) And they met, yeah, and had a conversation. And I thought, well, how wild is that to, you know, have a conversation with a gentleman of the enemy and and do it in a setting in which it's not controversial, but hear the story from two different perspectives. Yes, there's a lot more of that out there, and it is interesting to to do that. I've done a little bit of that. this was recommended, I can't remember the name of the book, and it's been several years ago, I ran across a gentleman who, who had, uh, was fascinated by Lomson 719 and was doing some research, might, might write something about it. So we ended up talking a little bit, and he was telling me about that book. And because uh, I think I alluded in there a couple times that, you know, we were going in places that they were waiting on us and we couldn't figure out what the heck was going on uh, at the time. And he said, well, this is probably why. And so he recommended the book, and I read it, and I'm like, oh, wow, interesting. But I don't remember the name. But if anybody's interested, I'll leave that with you, and you can put that out, and they can research his name, and it's out on Google everywhere, and yeah. find the book, and it's it's an interesting little side story. And that's just that one operation. Supposedly, he was ba- he was doing this in '64. I think I read that right. Wow. He alerted them to the uh, we were soldiers coming into that area. Supposedly, that they were getting ready to plan an operation or go into that that valley, uh, and. Um, that was back in what 64 65 when they went into the first major battle there yeah so that's the early early years yeah, early years yeah wow so. see those those types of things are interesting from an historical perspective if nothing else to learn learn from you know there you know watch your back obviously and make sure it's almost the day with all of our communications that we have it's almost better to go back to the old methods because then you can't get tapped and everything but then there's always this type of situation where you have a person who can figure out a way. You know, if there's a will, there's a way. Well, I'm I'm no spy, and I'm, I'm but I would think that my common sense and the people I've worked around or been around or know over the decades, and I'm pretty old now. I think there's no substitute for good old-fashioned human spying. I mean, yeah. I, just, I just don't think there is. But you know, CIA and everybody else, they got to have all this. And there's there's a place for that, but I think you got to have human intelligence to to really ferret it out. Yeah, and uh, that's one of the things, in my own opinion, and 
I grew up in the Cold War on SAC bases, and they were at the center of it. They were part of the triad. Bombers, Air Force missiles, and, of course, the Navy with their subs uh, was the fact that, uh, where was I going with that? <laughs> About espionage or yeah, yeah, spies, intelligence? Yeah, and having people on both sides that could uh, ferret information back and forth and uh, get it to the right people and try and make sense out of some of this stuff. So I think that's part of the problem. We don't know what the heck's going on in China. I don't think we know what's going on that much in Russia anymore. And we don't know what's going on in Iran, and North Korea. So uh, human intelligence, I don't know how you go about getting it, but it worked well in World War II. Yeah. So anyway, that's my two cents. No, no, it's good <laughs> stuff because um, it's interesting how all of these things, like you mentioned the Cold War and, and, you know, then you have Vietnam and then we have, you know, Afghanistan, Iraq, you know, with the 20-year war and everything. And y you mentioned, you know, all of this. And I wish we could say that um, history doesn't repeat itself or we, we learn our lessons, yet we tend to do it. It's just a different country, a different makeup. I mean, a lot of people talked about how the 20-year war was very similar in some ways to Vietnam. The losses were nowhere near that. Right. The the combat situations that, um, you know, we, we just ended were nowhere near like Vietnam. <clears throat> but I think that there are some similarities in terms of control, um, from our government, their interference, however you want to call it, into how they control the war and determine which battles are most important and when it is that you're going to be able to use fire. Um, I mean, I'm sure there was several situations you could speak about where <clears throat> your hands were strapped into what you could do or couldn't do. Yeah, we had, uh, I think it was countrywide, I'm pretty sure it was, uh, uh, zones which were called uh, no-fire zones. And then we had free fire zones. And basically what that meant was when you're flying over an area, if it was a free fire and you took fire, you could shoot back. If you're flying over an area and it was a no fire, if you took fire, you just had to eat it. Uh, <laughs> not everybody did that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I had a rule as the ace. When I was flying and I was the aircraft commander, I had a standing rule with my gunners. We get shot at, we shoot back. Unless it's an American fire base that some guy's drunk and shooting up at us, which could have happened once or twice. Yeah. <laughs> but other than that, you, you know, we take fire, you fire back. Yeah. Period. And uh, anyway, yeah. that, was, that was there. How many aircraft? <clears throat> well, first off, I, I want to read something maybe, you know, about the, um, the number of aircraft and all of that that was during that time frame because I think it's pretty, really important. Pretty um, staggering, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, and, and I can't remember. I was I actually thought I had uh, dog-eared it, but maybe I didn't. I know you said you had brought some statistics, but um, see, I think it... This page here. Ah, that's what I was looking at in the right very there. beginning. Yeah. Was that where I was going? All right, so in the preface here, during the Vietnam War, helicopters played a vital role in the overall strategy of fighting the war. During the 13 years that Americans served and fought in Vietnam, Approximately 12,000 helicopters from all services saw action, with the United States Army being the main force. There were 5,086 helicopters classified as destroyed, representing 42% of the helicopters that saw action in Vietnam. Many of the remaining helicopters flown not destroyed in Vietnam sustained some form of battle damage. Over 40,000 helicopter pilots and 60,000 crew members served in Vietnam. During the war, 2,165 helicopter pilots and 2,712 crew members were killed. Many more were wounded. When totaled, the number of pilots and crew members killed represented over 8% of the men and women whose names are inscribed on the Vietnam Memorial in Washington, uh, D.C. 
And on that number, there's 58,230 Americans mm-hmm. on that inscribed on that wall. That's amazing, and and I think all of us, <clears throat> I would say all of us, but there was a good segment of us within the Army, especially after Vietnam, um, and even I think up to, to today that understood um, pilots of that era, and not only that, but door gunners. Mm-hmm. Oh, the yeah. life expectancy of a door gunner at that time frame, you know. It was no more than a pilot and sometimes less. Those guys, uh, especially on Hueys, they could literally hang out over the skids, and they'd be strapped in from the back, and their machine gun would be uh, either attached here on the side or hang down, and they'd literally try to you know, hang out and shoot down. Straight down. Yeah, so they made themselves a bigger target sometimes. Uh, you know, they're all fearless. We used to have some sayings about pilots, but <laughs> I'll just say generally we're kind of considered a little crazy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you'd almost have to be, but, I mean, you were thrown in this situation in a lot of ways because of being drafted, but... You know, you think about the number of runs that are in this book, and I mean, it, it's, uh, what do you say, about an inch thick or so? Mm-hmm. And, and I mean, the number of battles that are within this, and there's some diary pieces where you talk about, um, you know, writing back home and those types of things that might give a little bit of a break between the actual stories of getting hit and hitting the LZ. But it was just like, almost felt like just reading it, exhausting of day after day after day. And every time you walked out, and got in that seat and took off, you didn't know whether you were going to come back home. No, and, I mean, that was real. That was real. That was real. That was tough. You uh, live like that, and um, I guess you, you get used to it is the right word. Or maybe the wrong. You, you tend to get used to it, but it doesn't make it any easier. There were many nights, especially during Lamson, which ran 60, about 60 days, and I flew, uh, I flew almost, and I won't say every day, but I flew probably 40 days out of that 60 period day period, give or take a day or two. <clears throat> Not every day in Laos, but many times in Laos, flew up in Quezon and around the area, go in and in, in, in and out. But anyway, uh, if you'd go to bed at night, at least in our company, and you'd know if you were on the dock at the fly the next day and where you're flying. And during Lamson, uh, those of us that were scheduled to fly the next day, we handled it in a couple our own way. Uh, I would just go back to my room and write in my diary and write a letter like, you know, this may be the last night I'm here. Uh, some guys would go have a couple of drinks and kind of cool out and, and so on. And then the guys would come in the next morning, the uh, OD and the, you know, whoever it was, the NCO or something, wake us up. And it'd be like 4 o'clock in the morning with their flashlights say, it's, you know, you got to go, buddy. So we'd get up and, boy, that was, it was tough to go to bed. It was tough to go to sleep and it was really tough to get out of that bed. We'd be out there with flashlights, pre-flighting our aircraft, and then we'd go get our equipment and grab a bite to eat, and we had to launch before the sun would come up to get to our wherever we were tasked to be first. So once you started, it all went and got was it kind of recessed mm. in the back of your mind. I was asked, uh, digress a minute, if I can remember it. I was asked by a couple people many months ago at a book uh, signing I did to a large group, um, and uh, a couple of a lot of questions, but uh, one guy and then another fellow basically asked me the same question: How did you, uh, how did you handle that? You know, how did you deal with that when you were flying? Mm-hmm. I mean, with all that going on around you, and uh, you were married and so on. I said, well, I said, I think for me, what I, I tried to do, and I pretty well did it, and I even do it to some extent this today. And this lesson, maybe to learn there, tried to live in compartments. When when I go out to the plant, when I go out to the uh, chopper. Um, 
I always ate breakfast, so I'd let it settle a little bit before we'd launch after a couple coffees and things. Uh, but uh, then I'd get my gear, my guns, and my chicken plates and all that, and we'd go out with the other pilot and, uh, and the crew chief and the gunners, and we'd all work together and, and pre-flight the thing and warm it up, and then, and then we'd launch. And uh, when I was uh, warming it up, that's when I basically just shut down everything. You know, you hear sports guys, these yeah. big sports guys talk about quarterbacks you know, blocking everything out. That's kind of the same thing. I mean, people aren't trying to tackle you. They're trying to kill you, but you still block it out. Yeah. Uh, you have to, at least I did, and I think most guys were able to do that in some fashion because you can't be thinking about your wife, your, your girlfriend, or what you're going to do tomorrow. You just got to be focused and alert. And your senses under combat situations, and even as a pilot in a non-combat, but more so in a combat, they're very heightened. I mean, you know, you just really... Pins and needles are on edge, but your your senses are way out there. You yeah, hear very hyper vigilant. Yeah. yeah, you see everything, and so uh, you think you see everything. And it's just uh, it's a whole other state of being. Mm. And at the end of the day, and you you know, I fly seven, eight, nine, ten hours a day. Sometimes, all of us did during that. Well, you'd be exhausted. Yeah, yeah. So it was tough, and it was uh, tough to go to bed, tough to get up, but um, you just you just dealt with it. Well, there is um, an ending. You don't let the the character um, you let you allow the character to survive and at least come back and have a, a you know happy ending meeting his wife and and all of that. Um, but there is just so much that I think guys who have served in especially the current war could take away from this of good. Um, and then those who are just wanting to understand about aviation during Vietnam can take away as well. I want to. Um, I know we could probably keep on talking for about three more hours because we've been at it almost uh, two hours now, Jeez. believe it or not. Yeah. And, but that's fine. Cause I, I, I probably will have you back so we can talk about some more stuff. Cause I think there's some other additional things I want to get into, but I do want to make sure that before we leave, where can people find this book? Well, there's a couple ways. Uh, one, I would encourage you to go to my website. It's uh, lowercase Larry freeland.com. You go to that, you'll uh, see a little bit about the book. You'll see a little bit about um, my history, if you will. But more importantly, you'll you'll see a bunch of the reviews on one of the drop downs. And I'm uh, very proud of it. There's a lot of reviews, a lot of articles. Um, uh, I'm up for author of the year in Georgia for 2022, uh, which is a real honor. I'll know something in June. Even being nominated was great. But if you go to my website, you'll be able to get a little background on the book and everything. Uh, and then at the, where you sit by the book, there's a icon you hit, and it brings up five sites. Uh, there's uh, Books a Million, there's which is BAM, and then the big one is uh, Amazon mm-hmm. and Barnes and Noble and Indie, and there's one other, and I can't for the life of me remember the name of. But there's these five different uh, websites you can go to. I don't get any more money for that. It's just easier. It brings you right into the site with my book, and you see everything, and you can order from that. Or you could go to your local bookstore and have them ordered if you want to support your bookstore. Uh, either way, you can do it. And it's in, uh, it's on all the ebook platforms, and it's uh, in uh, paperback. I really enjoyed reading this book, and um, I also enjoyed reading the comments from individuals. Very, um, a lot of them were um, that I read were Vietnam pilots or infantrymen who talked about how legitimate the stories are inside the book. And I'm sure for you, that's, you know, that's a, that's a big time thing to that's take away. That's very gratifying. That it is, yeah. 
But you're a very humble guy. So I want to read something about um, your background because I don't think that you've really um, expressed a lot about who maybe, you know, you are now and stuff or uh, the, some of the awards that you got then. I think I wrote them or I think I tried to type them all down. Let me see if I can find every one of them. Let's see, you, um, you're a recipient of the Distinguished Flying Cross with one oak leaf cluster, the Air Medal with 10 oak leaf clusters, the Bronze Star, and various other uh, military service medals. And these are awards that, th these, these are not, these are big time awards, Larry, that, you know, in, in the book, I, you, you probably are very much like the character where you just say, that's not something, you know, I want to put out there and everything, but it was very clear to your family when they saw when you, you know, or at least the character, and I'm assuming it's the same, when you came back and they saw it, just what you experienced. Yeah, my you know? parents, well, it's, that's, that part's basically true. It's uh, when I landed in, uh, <clears throat> it was December there in uh, Panama City, it was cold, and I came down the steps and met my family on the taper, apron out there and had on my khakis and I had on my flight jacket. Uh, and we went inside and warmed up, and I unzipped it. And my dad, who was retired then, but, you know, dad was a full colonel in the Air Force and uh, been in three wars, so he, he saw that, and he, he broke down. Yeah, yeah, understandably so. Um, Larry, I so much appreciate you coming in and sharing your story. I think there's a lot that we can still get into. I think, again, um, if you know of uh, or people who are listening to this story are Vietnam veterans. I'd love to hear more of those stories and share those because I think we'll learn from them that much more um, in you know future situations and stuff. And then there are a lot of cross similarities that I think uh, those who just fought within the 20 war can find comfort in, you know, all of that. And um, I, I think that, you know, again, I encourage people to reach out definitely to buy the book. Uh, follow you on social media. You're on there. I'll make sure I tag you and stuff when the episode drops so that they can follow you on that and see some of the great things that are going on. Congratulations on earning the award here in Georgia. Um, you may want to share just real quickly what that award was. Uh, well, I, I'm nominated. Nominated. For, not, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'll, know in, I'll know in June, early June, if I'm the one. But uh, just being nominated in, is uh, quite an honor, at least yeah. I think. So what's the award? Uh, it's uh, Georgia Author of the Year for a new novel. Right. And if I may, can I plug my new book real quick? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's right. I forgot about that. Always the marketing. My wife's sitting over there looking at me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I, uh, I had another storyline in mind. I'll only take a minute. Yeah. I had another storyline in mind. It had been in the back of mind for a good while. And that was uh, uh, writing a, uh, what I turned, determined to do, uh, a trilogy. Uh, and it would follow a, a family, American family of three generations of men that fight in all our wars and conflicts up to the present. It'll start in World War I with what I call the patriarch. And uh, book two will cover his son who fights in, uh, in uh, he'd be an aviator and be in uh, World War II, Korea and the Cold War. And then he'll have a couple sons. They'll be about book three and they'll be start with the Vietnam and all other conflicts we had. See, I, both my brothers served. My middle brother was a Navy pilot for 27 years, retired as a captain. My younger brother, he went over three times, twice to uh, Afghanistan, no, Iraq, 
We got that right. Iraq is where we went in. Mm-hmm. Uh, Iraq, uh, twice, 18 months each time with six months between deployments. But he did it on his own as a civilian contractor. He spent all his time on FOBs. He was an explosive expert and a linguistic guy. Okay. And he just liked to shoot guns. We used to call him Tom and I, my middle brother, used to call him Rambo. But he did two tours there in the forward bases with uh, a different infantry unit. And then he came back for a while and he went over to Afghanistan for 13 months and did the same thing. So I come from a military family. And I wanted to, in book three, I wanted to cover some of the stories that I know about and the incidents I know about. I think the average person probably would be shocked if they really heard some of those things. Uh, so, but book one, uh, I, I outlined the whole thing. I designed uh, some characters, if you will. And uh, then I approached my publisher early last year while we were getting ready to start pub- or put this out and market it. And he said, yeah, that's not like a good idea, Larry. He says, uh, you know, write your first book. We'll sit down and see what, what we got. So I worked on that uh, throughout the year. And to make a long story short, we just finished editing that, uh, the intense part of the process uh, this past week. So we're shooting to have it out by uh, sometime in June or July. Okay. And book one is uh, called, well, the, the, over, the overall title is uh, Legacy of Honor is the title. And then the subtitle, book one, is The Patriarch. And the main character there will be a World War I doughboy. And, um, you know, he'll, he'll, he'll be living like this fellow, <laughs> except in the trenches. But, uh, you know, there's a little bit of a love story there. And, there's a, and what I wanted to do in all three books, and that's where I was headed with this, is how do you people adjust, how do veterans adjust after the conflicts, mm. after they get out, or how are they received, how are they treated? And my book one is about 60% uh, in France during the war and in an ending. The 40% is him back with his new wife and trying to adjust and the things he, he had to put up with and deal with. And the people that have read it just go, oh my God, living in the trenches was bad, but when I can't believe that what they had to endure when they came back. And this is true. Yeah, this is all based in historical fact, uh, which some of that, and I, I know a little bit about World War One, but not the extent that I learned. And it's just, uh, I think it's going to be, hopefully it's going to be a good book. Book two will be, you know, so on. I'm starting to research on that and then book three. But anyway, that'll be coming. Book one will be coming out uh, June or July and hope it does well. So does that mean, uh, can I reserve the right then to have you back to talk about that? Absolutely. I'm enjoying this and I'm sure it's going to help. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think that would be tremendous. And of course, um, the fact that you're telling stories from the perspective of the eyes who saw them, whether it's yourself, your brothers, your father, your grandfather, and, and in a way, I'm a genealogist. Uh, I like to do a lot of genealogy in my own family. And so I when I, when I started researching about my ancestors, it, it starts telling the story of their trials and tribulations and resiliency and everything else that led me to me being here. And, and that's fascinating. And so you're now doing that with your grandfather or did to create the first book and you're going to do it uh, further on thereafter. And that's, that's fascinating to me as well. So I, I look forward to you coming back so we can talk more about that. It'll be a historical fiction, but based in a lot of, you know, stories and things. One more quick question, one yeah. more quick thing that I, I think is pretty cool, and a lot of people I've mentioned it to think so too, that, and that is that when my dad was deployed, I was in the fifth grade, he was deployed uh, to uh, Reno for 13 months, and uh, we lived with my grandparents in Louisville, Ohio, outside of Canton, and my granddad uh, was a big poker player, and he was uh, in the community, a small community, but he, he had several friends and they were all doughboys they didn't have to fight together but they were all in france and served in the trenches 
and they had a, a poker club, and they played once, sometimes twice a month on a Saturday night, and they'd play at the, on the second floor of the courthouse, which was on the first floor was the courthouse, the fire station, and the police station on the second floor was the records and a big room where they could all socialize and play guards and, and have uh, parties, whatever they did, and firemen would sleep in a corner. And occasionally, Granddad would uh, take me with him for his Saturday night poker games. And we'd you know, have dinner, and we'd walk down there, whatever it was, it was dark, and only a couple blocks from his house, and go up there. And, of course, the guys got to know me, and, uh, and they had food, and they, had, they, would, they would play poker, and they'd talk, and they would drink a little bit, and they'd smoke. They all smoked pipes, at least these guys all did. And uh, I would sit over there on the couch and drink their Cokes and eat their food and watch a little, a little telly over there somewhere. At some point, I'd pass out, you know, I'd fall asleep. And Granddad would you know, come over, check on me, and cover me and all that. <clears throat> and the next morning, they'd play all night. The next morning, he'd wake me up about 5, 6 in the morning when the sun was coming up. I said, okay, Larry, we're going back now. So he'd wake me up, and we'd walk to the local cafe, have breakfast, and then walk on home. And invariably, Grandma his wife would just jump all over him for keeping me out all night. <laughs> but the point of the story was, at times, well into the night or into the early morning, these fellows would start every once in a while talking about their experience, shared experiences and Opening stuff. up, yeah. Opening up. And I'd be laying over there on the couch with my back to them, and I would hear some of this. Mm. And at the time, I'd just hear these things, and they'd just, you know, I'm a little boy, and I was fascinated by, by not war, but I was fascinated by men who served and, yeah. and, and the code and the th- all those things that make them men. Uh, and um, so I would listen. And then, you know, years later, it'd come back when I was serving myself and I could relate a little more to some of those stories. But I drew on some of those stories to help oh, me Oh, within write, the new book. Within the new book. And I dedicate it to my granddad and the men who served. Wow. And I tell that little story in an acknowledgement. So... I thought that was pretty cool. No, that is really cool because then it puts a personable, personal element to the stories and stuff. That, um, And I think that's what I enjoyed about this is that I, I knew from reading it that there were fiction but yet truth within it. And I had to ask you to make sure, but um, I know a lot of guys who have done that type of stuff when writing the book just because they didn't want to have to go through all the checks and balances that have to occur. And it also allowed them to maybe, like you did, relate other people's stories within it so it's not an autobiography type of thing. You know, they can really share um, what other people experienced and through the single character or through characters of the book uh, that that person interacted with, you know. And, And it may have not have been shared that exact same way in real life, but you're able to put it together and make a story out of it where it seems like a fine, you know, stream of stories and from a single character. That's what I wanted to do. I wanted people who read it to come out the other end and say, well, I had no idea. I've, I've been to Vietnam as a pilot. And I just you know, feel like they have been and they feel, they feel everything that uh, TJ felt and experienced and his emotions and all the other things that go with it. But uh, I've had so many people tell me that and all I can say is I accomplished what I was trying that's, to start out. That's right. That's why I wanted to let you know. Mm-hmm. And again, um, Chariots in the Sky and Larry Freeland, go out there, go to his website, pick up the book, and you won't be disappointed. Thanks so much again, Larry, for coming on the show. Look forward to the next time we do it. Thank you. Appreciate that. Yeah, take care. You too.